Headphones in. Everything is gonna be alright with Brandon. I feel it. I feel it. Ooh. Coming round, coming round. Uh, uh. I need my nectar. I need my sweet nectar. This episode will be fueled by Gina, mango nectar, in the dented can. And a bit of a silo of coffee from Tim Hortons. Double-double football. That sounds good to me. Good. Sounds smooth. Silky smooth. This episode of Idea Grave brought to you by some Tim Hortons coffee. <laughs> Whatever the fucking weird nectar thing Jesse's drinking. And Boston cream donuts. What else did I have today? Figs. Oh, I got uh, I got some dried figs. Some figs. I got some pumpkin seeds, which I'm pretty excited about. Both are superfoods. <laughs> superfoods. Goodness. So, also dedicated to the memory of H.R. Gaga. Giger. 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 Artistic pervert genius. Lots of lots of weird penises in his art. Metallic penises. Weird gooey biomech stuff. It's weird timing because that uh, Jaredowski's Dune documentary is really taking off. Right, and now he's actually the, s- the second of two concept artists to die in the last two years from that movie. We lost Mobius at the end of 2012, and then now Giger. So. Was Mobius a, s- a sudden thing? What did he die of? Uh, I believe he had cancer. I think he was battling with stomach cancer for a long time. But yeah, it, it really sucks because he didn't finish his... Uh, he was working on a, a new version of the Air Tech Garage, I believe. Like a, a new story for it. Got one book out of three done and then kicked the bucket. Motherfucker. So, unfinished works. Got to finish those works before you Do go. Do you think he's one of those guys that has a 25-year-old son that draws just like him and is going to take up his father's legacy? I wouldn't be surprised. Do like a lame version of the comic he was going to make? Uh, that's almost a, uh, inevitable if someone else is going to finish a piece of work that someone so brilliant and so um, talented had been thinking about for so long to just have someone else start working on it. Well, there'll be an obvious decline in quality. Mm. It'd be like if someone else finishes Game of Thrones, if George R. R. Martin dies, like it'll be fine. People know how it's supposed to end and like what's supposed to go on. But uh, I'm sure there's lots of stuff he hasn't told anyone and it just storylines that just won't end. The there's same been way. a couple of things where they departed from the books that it seems like that they've made good choices. So they maybe. blew everybody's mind by showing that uh, the land of always winter part where the White Walker wa- rode up to the huge, weird, icy castle. And then another White Walker turned the baby into a White Walker. Mm-hmm. That hasn't happened in any of the books yet. Oh. It's supposedly supposed to be happening in the next book. So now they're jumping ahead of the books to kind of throw curveballs at the people watching the show so yeah. that they won't always be bored. Yeah. And have done some things like really, really different in this season that have, uh, you know, obviously all the fanboys are fucking raging. Well, <sighs> no, 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 no. I think it's great. And because uh, it'll be very similar to Breaking Bad where. George Martin can come in with his notes on how the direction he was going to take the story and he can work with a proper writing team that can just bust the thing out in a weekend. Yeah, that's true. You know, Whereas and he's working on he can work backwards, page. right? Like if he wants to go back to the novel, he can take the stuff that he's worked on with the story editors 
and he just has to put it in his own voice. Yeah. And it doesn't matter. Like, the fans of the books are going to buy the books anyway. Even the writing's if... not that great in the books, honestly. Mm-hmm. I, I tried to read some of it. Uh, Lucy's reading some. Yeah, it was just really, like, pretty low-level writing. Oh, God. Fucking... I tried to... I thought I could get through the audiobook, but even in that version oh. where I've got a narrator that's plowing through the boring parts, yeah. I couldn't handle it. I couldn't handle I think it, it. I think it might work as a, like an old school radio play. Like if they did it in the same fashion as like uh, Hitchhiker's Guide when they did the big BBC radio play of that. Yeah. Um, it might be really good if they got good voice actors and they got someone to kind of condense the story down to a listenable size. Mm. But uh, yeah, I, I don't think I'll read any of the books all the way through. I just skim through the synopsis of mm. all the chapters. I think you need to straighten the microphone a little bit. Uh-huh. You're going in a little bit sideways. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's sideways. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, I found that to be a, a, mu- a much more effective and enjoyable way to get all the information about this series. Which oh, is just the fucking wikis. The wikis, And yeah. it gave me crazy ideas about how you could develop uh, original content that way. Because, you know, typically what used to happen in the old days is a writer would go off onto his island, um, writing retreat, and they would build this opus. Yeah. And you'd deliver it to an audience uh, fully formed. And then gradually you'd pick up fans um, year after year. And once you got this like critical mass, you could, um, you know, get a movie deal and it would spread further. Yeah. And then um, from the success of the published novel and from the success of the movie, you could start to have tertiary things like fans doing um, fan fiction, fan fiction and Wikipedia pages and dummies guides to the themes and stuff extended universe stuff yeah but i think what the internet enables is it might be interesting to kind of flip that funnel create a mythos um, a wiki that just tells you everything about a world but not the story yeah and allow the story to come from that or just build it from scratch where like you start with the wikipedia page and it basically gives you beat for beat what the themes of the of the thing are about and what the characters are and as it like gains fans and as it gains strength, you start to invest money into making it into a show or making it into a book after, you know, don't put the cart before the horse. Yeah. So, so you avoid like that. Uh, it would be really interesting to see the statistics between like how much content is actually celebrated as being good versus yeah. like the stuff that's just produced. Like for how many bad pilots, for how many like lame full house style sitcoms, for how many like crappy Law and Order episodes do you get like one episode of Sopranos or Breaking Bad? Right. Yeah. Very. You know? uh, not very often. It's they're very rare things, and I think you would uh, through crowdsourcing and through building it up from um, the the initial ideas, pu- putting that first, I think would allow you to have better content. Yeah. Like by the time the thing gets made. Yeah, that's interesting. And there's a lot of, I mean. Extended universe or fan fiction or it just like rewrites tend to some of them tend to be a lot better than the original. Like I feel like we were talking earlier about like you know they're doing a new Terminator movie, and it's like Arnold Schwarzenegger starring in it as an aging old fucking skeleton. Oh god! All his skin just barely hanging on. Um, somehow they're. Gonna you never have to... know though. He might be. He might be going to that same Jim Stallone's in, and they might juice him up on human growth hormone. Then and... he'll his skull's gonna get all misshapen. He's gonna look like a <laughs> Neanderthal. It's gonna be even weirder. Or like one of those fucking um, Labrador dogs when they start to <laughs> get old and all the meat like sinks away from their skull yeah. and their eyes start to pop out. Oh, yeah. Creepy. Yeah. Like a big torso. But I feel like now the Terminator universe 
Uh, he's sort of like the James Cameron story that he established. There's got to be some fans out there of those two original movies who could write a way better fucking script or a yeah. fan fiction that could be adapted into a movie than whatever they're coming up with right now with, like, you know, Hollywood's best. Yeah, and, and just uh, for a moment, if it's just about making money and you want to be cynical, right. why not... You've tried the all the other approaches where you try to bring aging Schwarzenegger back and... You try to get Christian Bale in yeah. as a, as Just a way to scoop reboot up. it. Why don't you, know? you reboot it and take down the budget to $20 million. <laughs> take it down to $20 Take million. it down to $20 million. Find an indie director that is really uh, passionate about that Terminator universe and gamble on it. Like make five or six $20 million movies where people experiment with it rather than spending $200 million on the stuff that you... On, like, face and name recognition, right? That's all it's about. It's like, oh, we got to put Schwarzenegger in the Terminator movie. It's like, do you really? Do you really have to put they him in? They already did that with three, and it didn't work. It was terrible. Yeah. And then they and then they've CGI'd him into four, and mm. it still felt weird, because you know that that's not what he looks like anymore. Yeah. You, you, it's really hard to just suspend your disbelief about what Arnold Schwarzenegger actually looks like once you've seen a picture of him in the last ten years. Yeah. He is not the same man. And it's even I saw the other day uh, a, a, a few fans of Akira kickstarted um, just a trailer. They wanted to make a five or six minute trailer for a live action live Akira, action Akira. that wasn't Americanized and like westernized, and they nailed it with a super small budget. That trailer was more watchable than I guarantee any Americanized remake of Akira will ever be. And it just goes to show that these two guys from fucking God knows where with just a Kickstarter budget make something that's way more impressive and way more innovative and true to the source material than, you know, whoever they're going to give it to in Hollywood. There are some Mm. weird names going around for the Akira thing for a while. Who would be the least appropriate director? Hmm. It was it was seriously gonna be something like uh like Ben Affleck for a while. They were, it was like Affleck or someone had fucking gotten gotten on to direct the Akira movie, and the writer of the script was like, oh, I don't want it to be set in Neo Tokyo. We're gonna change it to mm. Manhattan because fucking New York needs to get destroyed every yeah, single summer. I mean, we have all the models built. It it really makes economic sense to blow up New York to blow yet up New York another time again and again and again. And then he he went as far as to start bashing the source material, being like, "Oh, the characters in Akira are really boring, and Japanese people write boring characters on purpose." It's like, what? That's kind of short sighted. And also, it sounds like you don't want to make this movie if you really think the source material is that boring. Make your own movie about New York getting destroyed and leave fucking Akira out of it. Yeah, isn't Akira a relatively small story apart from? Uh, the ending when he turns into the big blob monster uh, the thing. Movie, the movie it turned out to be um, a, con- a condensation of like a lot of different things from the book, but the, the actual anime or manga, sorry, is uh, like six huge trade books long. It's massive. Um, Involving a huge cast of characters? or just Pretty like... much, yeah. There's a lot of characters, and it really just kind of builds on uh, builds on the like Tetsuo kind of thing. And Tetsuo goes through like a lot of those phases where he's like morphing into machines and and kind of discovering his power Mm. and neo tokyo gets blown up like a few times in the book it's Mm. it's a it's a a lot bigger story than they ever made the movie but they just couldn't translate that much material into an hour and a half movie Mm -hmm. so they took the best parts and i think the movie's the best animated movie in that style like a 2d animation style nothing touches it yeah maybe ghost in the shell Mm -hmm. comes pretty close but akira is perfect it, we, I, I'm also starting to wonder what the um, 
the necessary role of reboots is in an era where you have always on access to content. Yeah. Like it used to be that uh, you could re-release Dark Side of the Moon every five or six years in a new package. Yeah. And the tenth anniversary edition. The new um the new group of kids or teenagers coming into the record store for the first time would pick up stuff. But now you just you can keep moving forward. Like you've already got Akira f- finished. Yeah. You don't need to do like a new version with slightly better special effects or whatever. It's not going to change anything. And what remake has delivered? Yeah. Ha- have you seen a single remake of a movie um, with the exception of maybe Godzilla coming out on Friday? Mm-hmm. I have actually sort of high hopes for that. I think it might not be terrible. Even though, again, it's just another fucking New York gets destroyed. It's a this hard summer. thing to do because the stakes are too big. I think that they might have done it smart in making. It seems like Brian Krantz, It's the story is mainly about Brian Cranston trying yeah. to find his wife. It's which could be cool in a kind of Titanic type of way. Like it's a a story about people in the midst of a disaster. That yeah. makes sense. They took a they took a page from Cloverfield. Kind mm-hmm. of where the movie was, yeah, it was about a big scary monster tearing New York apart that like crawled out of the ocean. But predominantly it, it focused on the f- three or four people who were running away from it and like trying to just get to somewhere safe and being very confused mm. and tried to convey that sense of true confusion of like, uh, we have no idea what's going on and we don't care because we just have to run. Mm-hmm. I feel like hopefully they took a bit of, bit of a nod from that and uh, made Godzilla a bit less of just about Godzilla fighting yeah buildings and yeah. stuff and just tearing shit up yeah they, they're definitely closer to what the fanboys are gonna want because i know uh my friend todd he's he was always in godzilla as a kid yeah and he was very confused in the 90s when they redesigned the monster into that yeah. kind of t-rex piece yeah. of shit yeah. uh he's like godzilla doesn't look like that he's supposed to be you know a humanoid he looks like a dude in a rubber suit with fucking biceps and things yeah and uh Somehow they've they've made like a more realistic version of that. It seems to work. I I mean that's yeah, monster design especially like contemporary monster design is boring. Like anytime someone like even just the Cloverfield monster was like just a weird like four legs and like lungs on its face, really scary. Like <laughs> terrifying. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like they there aren't really many uh, creative monster designers working in Hollywood right now coming up with new ideas mm-hmm. think of any a horror movie like when's the last time you saw like a really good monster horror movie i guess super eight was kind of uh had some of that it's not really horror. yeah no it's kind of a kid's movie yeah super eight yeah oh, it's it's hard to to work in these genres uh it, it's you're almost at the point where like you can give up going to the movie theater anymore yeah it's the uh the, it's really the golden age of tv Everything, all the writing talent has gone to television, it seems like. Cause but even then, it's only a couple shows, right? It's not like they're all spread out among a bunch of shows. It's still just like whatever millionth season of The Simpsons, mm. millionth season of Family Guy, millionth season of South Park, and then like a few good dramas yeah. that anyone talks about. That's mm-hmm. it, right? Beyond True Detective and Game of Thrones and Walking Dead, what's anyone talking about? I like Silicon Valley. Yeah, that's yeah, I'm pretty pretty fresh. Yeah. I watched the first episode, I was pretty impressed. It's light. I mean it, it doesn't blow my mind or anything, but yeah. I just uh I, I dig the characters. I think that uh it, it's uh it's the perfect time to mine some of that stuff. Some yeah. of that content. Um, yeah. And Mike Judge is the perfect guy to do it. Yeah. Like he, he's, he's been ne- there. He's needed another television vehicle for a while. 
um, especially after King of the Hill ended, and he did Idiocracy, which is a great movie, but kind of uh, underappreciated. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people have a hard time getting past the language and the the true like bottom barrel humor of that movie to see why it's so funny. Who's the dude that starred in it? Luke Wilson. Luke Wilson is what turned me off about it. He's I don't not know very why. charismatic. Yeah. <laughs> of the two, of the two Wilson brothers, he turned out he's more handsome. He's definitely more handsome. His nose is not like all weird, <laughs> fucked up, strawberry shaped <laughs> thing. But uh, yeah, he's not very charismatic. He doesn't have a lot of range. Yeah. Um, if you've ever seen the first, uh, the first Wes Anderson movie, which was his and Owen Wilson's first movie, Bottle, Bottle Rocket, Rocket. Yeah. it's it like it stars around him, and it's really should be about Owen Wilson because he's a far more charismatic character that has way more interesting personality traits. But instead, a huge bulk of the movie is about Luke Wilson being in love with a fucking yeah, a the, maid, yeah, the maid, Mexican <laughs> and, and, maid, and it, it just being weird scenes of him following her around the hotel and talking to someone who doesn't it, understand yeah, English. Yeah, you're right on when you say he doesn't have much range. He just kind of he wrinkles up his brow and he kind of just looks at people. He's good at being confused. At He's like, oh, I don't understand. Yeah, that, kind of that was more an Owen Wilson impression you did there, but <laughs> still. And the, yeah, it was like, I mean, they've both done their shitty things, but. Luke Wilson was on that '70s show for like a long time. Mm. <laughs> That's a which character did he play? He was like uh, he was Donna's other boyfriend after she broke up with with Eric. Oh, and uh, Kelso's older brother. He played a Kelso uh, brother. Uh, Perfect for him. Yeah. Dumb, confused, kind of jockey. Yeah, he's one of those guys that you got to wonder about their agent. Some people have killer agents in Hollywood where they always end up in the perfect spot. Yeah, and somehow they're everywhere. Everywhere that's cool. And other people have terrible agents where each time you see them in something, you, you like them a little bit less. And you're always just asking yourself, why did you take this script? You already have so much money. What did you need to do this fucking Night at the Museum 4 <laughs> movie for? Like, come on. It's tough being an actor. I guess so. There's a lot of, I guess. They want attention. Yeah. You got to keep pumping it out, pumping that content out, <laughs> no matter how good it is. Luke, they've decided they've offered you uh, two vehicles this month. Uh, one, you're going to play uh, Caveman that's been thawed out from the ice. <laughs> it's a remake of a famous, critically acclaimed movie called Encino Man. <laughs> the other thing I don't. And the other thing is a Wes Anderson movie. <laughs> the other thing is a Wes Anderson movie where you play your brother's brother. Your brother's brother. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Uh, oh, again, another another movie thing I was thinking about earlier. Uh, speaking of Luke's, the new Star Wars cast mm. announced that new Star Wars cast looks pretty terrible. <laughs> yeah, I, I was uh, when I, when they brought J.J. Abrams on, I I thought for sure that the plan was, oh, okay, they like the Star Trek reboots, so they're gonna have him recast Luke, Leia, and Han and stuff, and they're not gonna make the same mistake that they did. Nobody for is going to Indiana want to Jim see Jones Four. Nobody's going to want to see Carrie Fisher in this movie. They're going to be so upset. They're going to go in in their minds being like sexy Princess Leia and they're going to see aging Carrie Fisher and be like, oh. It's, it feels just like the Indiana Jones uh, 4 movie. Yeah, yeah. How uh, Red Letter Media really hit the nail on the head when they were saying that the the reality is that Indiana Jones isn't really a character. He's kind of like James Bond. Yeah. He's, he's like a male power fantasy. Yeah. And... No one wants to see the grim reality that we're all going to become senior citizens and lose our mojo yeah. and start having to make old man jokes like, 
I can't shoot as well as I used Uh-oh. to. It's getting old. I'm getting a little too, too old, old for this. Too old for this shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Dad. Oh, Indy. And the other the other points that they made, which was kind of harsh, but it's like no one wants to see Indiana Jones like get married to old Marion. No, you know he's. They want to see Indiana Jones, the free rambler that he always was, just like fucking killing Nazis and searching for treasure. That's all he ever in needs part, to do. In the third movie, you saw Indiana Jones's dad. Yeah. And they insinuated that he fucked the Nazi chick. Yeah. Right? So that's kind of more appropriate. Like, you, you took old James Bond and you had him, like, still swinging dick at yeah. his age. Right? And that fits more with the character. As soon as you start to say, like, and then he retired and he... He settled down. He decided to spend more time with his illegitimate son. He he dropped <laughs> Indiana and just became plain old Jones. <laughs> Mr. Jones and, and then, me. An, another confusing, uh, confusing aspect of that new Star Wars cast because they obviously they brought back Ford and Fisher, but they also brought back the original dwarf in the R two D two costume, which they Gosh, don't even need anybody. Damn, he's still alive. He's seventy nine. What? 79 years old. I thought dwarves didn't. They had like a shortened lifespan. Well, I mean that's that's sort of a that's not always true. It's no. it, that's sort of an expectant thing of like yeah dwarfs generally tend to not live quite as long but that doesn't mean they can't live full long lives nice. and he clearly has um yeah and then uh and then they got the same guy for chewbacca too the same two people who played r2d2 and chewbacca and cp3 all all three characters from the original movies aging now, actors that do don't you need think to that be there in was costumes? some kind of algorithm in play where they were like let's put in these variables if we recast the characters how much money will we make right if we bring back every character how much money we make? and obviously bringing back every character for name recognition is going to just the sell whole gang tickets. is oh. back the whole gang is here this isn't the prequels we yeah. haven't recast anybody george <laughs> lucas is not involved were you tired of all those stupid fucking characters they came up with for the prequels? No Jar Jar in this one. We killed him off and brought back Carrie Fisher. Except she's going to be CGI Carrie Fisher. She's going to be like, you remember when uh, they took uh, fucking Ripley, fucking Sigourney Weaver in the Avatar and they were going to bring her back to life and she was she was naked in the, the Navi jungle? And they like CJ out her face onto a CGI onto a, body. Onto a nice body. Onto a nicer body. <laughs> I have a feeling they're going to do that to Carrie Fisher. They're going to... Photoshop her face. Think about it. think about her as like kind of a a heroine, but also a a sex image in that time, right? Her in that brass bikini from the third movie is an iconic image of beauty. Yeah. Like every every fucking nerd for thirty years has fantasized about having sex with brass bikini Carrie yeah. Fisher. They're going to be so fucking disappointing. Well, they could just they could style her like the old lady and uh the old uh, Tyrell matron from Game of Thrones. Right. Where she's, where she's really she's an wrapped old queen. Up. Yeah. You Which know, is that, would, that would work. That would be fine. She doesn't have to be hot anymore. She could just be uh you know, the empress or something. Another mistake is that they chose not to uh they chose not to include any of the extended universe stuff that had already been written about yeah. after the movies, which a lot of fans find to be really really coherent. And, uh, like, part of the canon. It's as good yeah. as the movies. And they had all of this existing material to write a trilogy around where, like, Luke starts a I Jedi that school. That's J.J. Uh, Abrams' contribution because he did the same thing to Star Trek, right? Where they, he brought in the same screenwriters are doing the new Star Wars movies. Yeah. They're going to do a timeline thing where it's, you know, the Empire has 
some sort of star generator thing and it's called like the doom gate and it opens up a, a new universe and you know, i the, hope not the millennium falcon flies through the doom gate uh, and then... <laughs> i really hope not like jj abrams is really hit and miss for me because like he's done stuff like the star trek reboots which are fine what's good about him he's not afraid to spend money and he's not afraid to work hard yeah, like he uses practical sets, practical effects, and you can see him running around on set energetically. He's yeah. not sitting in his his parka lounge or drinking coffee like fucking yeah. Peter Jackson. He's in his prime. Time. He's he's really hands-on director, which is good. Um and it shows in all of his stuff, right? Yeah. Like you can see it's the style energetic. come through mm-hmm. like through everything. And even Lost, as much as I hate Lost and think it's the most boring fucking piece of shit show ever, it still has like <laughs> a pretty decent uh Cinematography, like, it looks good. The, the premise is cool. The premise is okay. It's like, apparently, there was talks about rebooting that show. Oh, good. Yeah, let's have another fucking eight seasons of that. Yeah. Not going anywhere. Yeah. What was even the point of that show? I don't, I don't recall. I just remember being very upset at the end of it and being it's, like, uh, Lost yet? Lost yet? Lost yet? Yeah. The whole island is a record and the needle is skipping. <laughs> What? <laughs> what the fuck are you talking about? I um, mean, this week there's a polar bear. I mean, this week there's killer smoke. I mean, this week there's... The smoke monster! <laughs> Locke's got a new personality. We're bored of the other one. Move on. I don't know. Fuck you. You'll watch it. Dinosaurs <laughs> future. Fuck you. You'll watch it. That was the best South Park episode. Oh, hands down. <laughs> it nailed every single thing it was parodying. Just especially all the movie teasers were just like, the president is a duck and the country's going to the dogs. Or maybe the president's a dog. Whatever. Who cares? You'll buy it. <laughs> Adam Sandler's got a bunch of turds in his apartment. Ah. <laughs> uh, but I mean, it, this is this is a transitionary kind of thing. Yeah. Like what's ha- what's going on basically is Hollywood is going to be under the same stress that the record industry was. Yeah. Where they're less and less likely to take risks on things. Yeah. So because they're used to making this amount of money, right? Yeah. Like a big chunk of money, and the prospect of not increasing that exponentially with each movie is very scary to old Hollywood. Mm. Whereas like you have to just realize that you can't fucking pay every actor thirty million dollars and, and make it, money. It's perfectly logical. I mean, if you were some old billionaire and you were gonna put your two hundred million dollars somewhere mm. and somebody's like we could put it into this new um, blank director who's kind of unproven and he might do some kind of unexpected. We might win some Academy Awards. Yeah. But you might lose all of the money. Yeah. Or you can, you know, put it into a, a startup on Silicon Valley or whatever. Like, the, it just doesn't make economic sense to, to bet on movies, especially when video games are doing so well, right? Much better. Why don't you put money into a gaming company? So we, we were, me, uh, me and a friend were kind of looking through top grossing actors, mm-hmm. highest paid actors per movie, yeah. and stuff like that. Just so goddamn absurd. Mm-hmm. And the way that like the movie industry works on that like name recognition, it's like, oh, you want your movie to be a guaranteed box office hit? You gotta put one of these ten names in it, and guess what? They all cost $30 million or more. <laughs> like, you know, they just, it has to be this big fucking affair where they spend way too much money and then lose out on it. And then it's a huge failure because they just, uh, they didn't work within the, the 
a proper budget. They didn't work in the scope of the movie. They're mm. just trying to make it too big. Mm-hmm. Too fucking big. Everything has to be epic and huge. <laughs> what happened to just like a bit of modesty in filmmaking? Yeah. You know? Yeah. All, all of uh, Orson Welles' movies, which are like some of the greatest movies of all time, uh, you know, they don't have any budget or production value of any real kind. Yeah. Like, but it's also a different product, right? Yeah. I mean, they, uh, the, the way that they're designing stuff nowadays is with the eye on a world market mm. and the eye on the idea that if you're selling this movie to um, Chinese teenagers, uh, you don't want like a really convoluted plot filled up with a lot of culture that they don't identify with. Right. You want to have as much like people shooting super powered flames out of their fingers and flying around and stuff because it's universal. Like everybody has. Everybody sort of gets of, that. Yeah. Yeah. You think that it. might be like a serious problem for content creation, trying to appeal to too many audiences at once? Oh, definitely. Like you can. You completely remove the stakes of any story if you scale it up too big, I think. And the crazy thing is that um, every director can't avoid falling into that pit. They're always tempted into trying to make the story grander than the one before it. Yeah. So you look at something like... uh, Christopher Nolan is just a is is a easy example just because lots of people have seen those Batman Batman movies. movies, Yeah. But... uh, the uh, the Dark Knight had a, perf- a pretty good balance of um, low stakes circumstances mm-hmm. um, with high stakes interpersonal conflict. Right. So, and you could see really clearly on um, in that movie how when uh, you know you have the four main characters and the Joker is threatening to blow up two of them. Mm-hmm. That's a way more intense emotional situation than when the later on in the movie the Joker has two boats full of complete I, strangers that we haven't met. That was the dumbest fucking. It was completely backwards. Oh. Like the boat scene should have been um, in the middle of the movie, or and... even just like a sizzler at the beginning. That could have been a great opening where it like kind of cuts to this like mm-hmm. crazy ship thing and the Joker, but like did not really that tense. Didn't yeah. add a lot to the plot. Yeah. And then there's just that whole scene where he's using his bat vision, his yeah. blue bat vision yeah. going through the Nobody like, nobody dug that. Cut the fucking fat, man. Mm-hmm. Just make a good Batman movie that doesn't have a bunch of bullshit. That, you compare that to something like the finale for Breaking Bad where um, simple. It's simple. Eloquent. It's got, uh Walter White doing a victory lap basically. Yeah. And then the final confrontation just comes down to a, a simple choice like are you going to save your um fake son? You know, right? Are you, you and Jesse Pinkman gonna make up for the the fifth time? Um, and it's it's just so much more intense than um, you know a Michael Bay ending where like Will Walter go into a multi gun shootout with the um, with the police force? Will he yeah. blow up a, a building and uh, hijack a helicopter? And... It's it's really beautiful if you think about that Breaking Bad finale and you think about all the locations, all mm-hmm. the sh- shot on locations. It's like. He goes to the rich couple's house. He's uh, he's at a payphone. He's at Skyler's house. He's at the fucking Nazi compound and the diner. Those five places comprise the entire finale, mm-hmm. and you don't need anything more than that. And the most fantastical thing to happen in that entire episode is the gun shooting off from the back of the car, which probably costs almost nothing to shoot. Yeah, not a very complicated looking scene. Not a very like hard job to do. And it ended up being one of the most 
emotionally satisfying endings to any TV show I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Fucking blew Sopranos out of the water, blah, blah, blah. Like, as much as I think Sopranos may have been a better show in the long run, um, beat for beat, like, throughout the seasons, that was still a much better ending. Yeah, and Sopranos was... It was a tough finale because David Chase, um, he was very candid about um, admitting that he didn't like Tony Soprano as a character. Mm -hmm. And he thought that it was kind of twisted that um, the audience had turned him into a hero figure. And he always had, him and James Gandolfini had a lot of misgivings about working on that show and Mm -hmm. humanizing uh, monsters a sociopath basically. and that's why and, they really um, they really drive it home in those last few episodes yeah like when Melfi's going through all the stuff and sort yeah, of realizing he's that irredeemable he's, he kills Christopher um, that's a fucking shocking scene yeah there's something creepy about Bobby Bacala being made like number two in the mob and having because he was kind of just a sweetheart he, he was, was a big hearted gangster right yeah um, he makes him go do his first uh, his first hit and stuff like that, mm-hmm. and it's all very very awkward and weird. Yeah, and it's like you know taking advantage of the fact that Bacalas sort of uh, looks up to him and is like really hopeful and wide eyed and mm-hmm. like wants to make people proud. Yeah, yeah. I Has mean, it become like common knowledge what the interpret interpretation of the the Sopranos ending was? From my uh, from what it's, I know and like it's from just my that one blog where that guy dissected it did that become mainstream i think i read that but i'm not sure how many people really like read into it other than like super hardcore Mm -hmm. fans because when i've talked to people about the ending a lot of people (laughs) a lot of people sort of got the the impression that tony soprano lives at Mm. the end and i was like that's really wrong you weren't i'm not to harsh your buzz or anything like that and say that you're not smart or something, but you're kind of watching it wrong if you think that Tony Soprano is a hero that gets away with it in the end. Like, yeah. if you think about the structure of that show and how every single moment of every single episode and every single conversation down to the most minute thing has to do with Tony and comes from sort of a weird, like, Tony's perspective of what's going on, right? Limited perspective of the storyline coming from Tony's point there of view. There is a lot of scenes that he's not in, though. That he's not in, but they're mm-hmm. always talking about him. And, like, after I sort of formulated that, and I started thinking, like, they're always... It's either Tony's on screen or when he's not, they're always talking about him or something that's about to happen mm-hmm. to him. He is the main character, so it just makes total sense that when he dies at the end, it's just like... Just cuts out. Sure. Finished. Because yeah. it's from his point of view and there's yeah. nothing after that. Yeah. I, I, I thought it was self, uh, uh, self-evident self that he did get shoot, shot in the head and that's why the lights went out on the episode. Yeah. Um, but I also thought that it was, a, it was deeper than that in that um, David Chase uh, had designed an ending that would deliberately... Um, pull the rug yeah. out from underneath people that wanted that bloodlust, mm-hmm. you know, where they wanted that Scarface ending and they wanted to see. He he really he really put into the minds of people and made them. I hope I think he made the audience question um, what what it is, what is it inside us that wants to see uh, the collateral damage that wants to see like Tony's brains on the table. They insinuated that Carmela gets like hit in the crossfire because she was dressed up as Marie Antoinette in the, I think three episodes yeah. earlier, like yeah. while she was on vacation in Paris. Um, there was, it's it's a weird kind of Shakespearean thing, yeah, that the audience wants to have that kind of, and but really in the catharsis. long run, 
if he had just done that and he had yeah. killed off Tony Soprano, I think there would have been a decent chunk of fans of the show who would have been really angry to have seen Tony die on screen. Mm. They don't if he's really this hero to a bunch of people, like mm-hmm. even if he's an anti-hero, then really in the long run those people don't want to see his story end. They want to have yeah. That maybe that bit of hope in the back of their mind mm-hmm. that he just goes on and that the Sopranos yeah. universe runs on in their head. And I, I don't think that that's a misinterpretation either because I think that um, the the other way that the ending kind of works and the other thing that David Chase had constructed is leading into that finale. You through previous seasons you had seen all of the different iterations yeah. of how a gangster dies. Mm-hmm. You saw um, the New York boss. Um, get cancer and yeah. slowly shrivel away. You saw uh, Junior get dementia and end up broke in a nursing home. Yeah. You shot like various um, executions and all of the different ways that you can get shot in public. Yeah. And on one level, it's also kind of like Chase is cutting it and saying like, and so on. Mm-hmm. Right. So right. I get what your friends are saying that uh, they can imagine that Tony lives on that, that I think there's play in there because uh, Chase is, is uh, giving you the benefit of the doubt and saying, right. like, you you know how this ends. Like, Tony himself even said in a previous episode, there's only two ways out for a guy like me, yeah. either dead or in jail. Yeah. So you, you don't need that final beat on the story. No. It's more interesting. And to- they, they lead up to that whole, like, like, cut to black thing in those episodes. He's talking to Bacala, and they're talking about, um, yeah, you probably don't even hear it. You know, like getting yeah. shot in the head. You probably don't even hear it. Probably just fade to black. And then in another one, he's reminiscing about having to kill pussy, big pussy on the boat. And he, pussy had to sit down right before he gets shot, right? He goes, oh, guys, I got to sit down. And they sh- fucking blow him away. Um, and he has a dream where he, he wakes up right as he's saying to himself, I wonder if I'll have the guts to stand up. Mm. And he's sitting down in the restaurant, right? He doesn't even have a chance to stand up. He, it comes in, it catches him off guard. It's it's silent, mm, quick, smart. and he doesn't get a chance to stand up and be a man, right? Which is the whole like yeah. the whole point of the show is and him trying to, to think be a of strong it, now man. that we're talking about it. They even did the afterlife scenario where he had that heart attack, mm-hmm. and there was that creepy scene where everybody was inviting him into that house, and yeah. he was uncomfortable staying at the party, and he left, and he ends up waking up in the hospital. Yeah, so they've really already played out and staged all of the the stuff that would have been repetitive to do in the finale so i thought it was smart yeah super super beautiful ending yeah no matter how you slice it and mm-hmm. like you know if you want to interpret it that tony lives on and is super happy that and that's i guess your uh interpretation of the show right you probably look at the show a lot differently mm-hmm. than i do yeah going back to what you were saying though that it seems to breaking bad seems to have been more effective for you if, if oh, you liked yeah. it better and it, well because it was a uh there's sort of a, a certain neatness about it, which was inherent in Walter White's character. Like, there, t- uh, Tony Soprano and Walter White are very different kinds of people. Mm-hmm. A lot of what Tony does is really messy. It's not clean. It's not calculated. It's not very well thought out. It's very reactionary. Whereas Walter White, from the very get-go, from his first lie that they like go back to, that oh, Bogdan's got a bug up his, bug up his butt... That first lie is so calculated and so crafted to sound realistic so that he can trick his wife. From day one, everything is uh, as neat and tidy as his brain can keep it. 
Mm. And he's always thinking uh, steps ahead and sort of keeping people under his thumb. Yeah. And so for the ending to be any different would have been an injustice to the character. Like mm-hmm. to have Walter White just go to jail or die without solving any of his problems is not at all in line with how the rest of the story goes. Yeah, in order for the arc to be finished, it needs to, to go that direction. And he fucking died happy, right? Like he is one He is one of the, the criminal sort masterminds of. that like... It, it will, um, Vince Gilligan said in the script, I mean, it, it's supposed to be evident in the show. It's not quite like obvious, but uh, that last moment of him sort of walking through the laboratory, like checking in on Jesse's cook and like kind of rubbing the machinery. Uh, he uses that piece. The cook's going well. Um, Jesse, he taught Jesse properly. Everything's going as it should. And, and like mm. he's at home in the lab, right? Yeah. He's back with his chemistry tools. And then that last moment before the cops come, he just slips up onto the ground and just has a weird smirk on his face and just zooms out like just complete satisfaction in what he just accomplished yeah he left money for his family he killed his enemies he fucking let Jesse go end of story like he fixed everything and fucked off right and that's like that's really beautiful that's a perfect perfect ending for his arc I think mm-hmm. and morality doesn't really play into it there was a lot of uh, backlash when it came to the, the final episodes of Breaking Bad that mm. Walter White was an irredeemable bastard, and there, were, there was a lot of people that wanted to see him punished. But I'm like, why would you construct drama that way? Drama's not supposed to be set up where, you know, everything ends up tidy and like all of the the villains pay for their mistakes and stuff. It's yeah. it's about arcs. And That's not about, how real life works. Yeah, you should, uh, you know, his, historically speaking, a lot of villains just get away with it. They go on to live pretty happy lives. They do a bunch of horrible shit, and they go on to just be completely normal. That's what uh, that that documentary, Act of Killing, is all about, right? The guy participated in a huge genocide, genocide and then he went on to live a completely normal life where people kind of heralded him as a hero, and he never had to really answer for his crimes until mm-hmm. someone presented it to him and said, you're a fucking monster, man. Like, how can you sleep at night? Mm-hmm. And yeah, it just... Some villains just get away with it. They Did walk away scot free. Um, the unknown knowns yet? No, what's that again? It's a new Errol Morris documentary, uh, kind of in the style of Fog of War, mm. but he interviews um, Donald Rumsfeld. Okay, about uh, the Iraq War and stuff. Interesting. It's neat. It's it's neat. Uh, it's very different than Fog of War, in mm. that um, Rumsfeld doesn't really have a whole lot of remorse about what went on in the Bush administration. No, clearly not. <laughs> he seems like kind of a bureaucratic robot that yeah. uh, did some crazy shit and acknowledges that not everything worked out as he planned, but, you know, shit happens, that kind of thing. Yeah. He just has this this grin through the whole interview where he's just like, eh. I think it was, I think it was him and Louis C.K. Did you hear about that? Like, they were in an interview together. What? It was like, Rumsfeld or someone else in the How Bush administration. I want to say Rumsfeld, but I might be wrong. Don't exactly quote me on this. But it was someone a high up in Bush administration. Mm. Um, and uh, at at some point, Louis C.K. is like, "Do you think it it's at all concerning that there's like a significant amount of people out there who actually believe that you're a lizard person?" <laughs> and Rumsfeld <laughs> Rumsfeld gives this answer that does not address the question at all. It's just sort of like, ah, you know, like people, blah, 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 America. And uh, at the end, Lucy Case is like, maybe he's you know, a lizard that person. is something a lizard person would say in response <laughs> to that question. Are you sure you're not a lizard? <laughs> but yeah, he seemed to have like no real um, remorse or even uh, sort of an actual perspective on how he was viewed by 
certain American people. Mm. Like, he might not think of himself as any kind of villain or mm-hmm. any people from the Bush administration probably might just look at what they did as being completely justifiable and mm-hmm. not at all evil or shady. Well, I and mean, that's a scary thought. It's a funny kind of background those guys all have because they're very well versed in things like World War Two, like a, a knowledge of history in World War Two. Right. And you can tell by their rhetoric that they have a very 19th they have a very 20th century view of the world in that the most heinous crimes are when the leader of a country does terrible things to his own people. To his own people. But so long as it's to someone else. But it's so, so long as it, you are doing crimes or you know, kind of like morally gray actions Liberating in service Iraqis. of making your country more rich, mm. then that's... Okay. It's fine. Yeah. So from their twisted point of view, you know, Saddam Hussein was a bad guy. He was uh, bad to his own people. He's torturing and and raping and mutilating people in his own country. True. He was illegitimate. So, you know, they have have a moral right to kind of go in and clean up that thing. So how is it going to work with with this, like, Putin getting the balls to just start annexing other countries? Because he's... I mean, uh, you could argue that he's doing horrible things to his own people in ter- in terms of like you know gay rights and just like treating the average Russian. Mm. But he's not doing any of the kind of like easily definable atro- atrocious things that someone like Gaddafi or Saddam was doing. Yeah. So how do they justify stopping him from taking Ukraine back? I don't know, man. <laughs> and the funny thing about it is that uh, Russian, the Russian oligarchs and the Russian uh, gangsters in the government, they're under the same pressure that the American um, oligarchs and gangsters in the American government are under. And the same thing's going on in Canada, like where you have a federal government, centralized governments that are all scrambling to figure out what the hell their role is in this new world where communication is basically free and we're on the cusp of decentralizing the currency, Mm -hmm. right? What do you do when... You can start to move millions of dollars uh, covertly across networks and, you know, not be able to track, like, who's the millionaire, who's who's got the next, like, killer app, who's got the next, who's got the control over, you know, um, innovation. Mm-hmm. You know, all of that stuff is, is going to be very precarious and rapidly changing hands to the point where it's hard to corrupt, you know? Yeah. Like, under the old system... When you had your media barons and stuff, you had like a group of um, a couple, a few hundred people that owned the radio stations, that owned the newspapers, that had the money to and the um, the technical clout to be able to win elections and put up a thick enough smokescreen to just do pretty much whatever they wanted yeah. with their power. I think that there's a lot of uncertainty among that class of people that the party might be coming to an end, you know? Can you can you rationally predict who's going to be the next president of the United States? Because I'm pretty sure that Hillary Clinton was supposed to win last time. And right. there was, uh, you know, Barack Obama's ability to raise money on the internet kind of surprised people a little bit. And yeah. I think that it's going to become even more unpredictable the next time around. Which is why, Which is why I think that 
certain governments are really trying to get a, a stranglehold over the internet. That whole like you know net neutrality and uh, and really just can it work? Strangling though? the cats out of the bag. They 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 just it's things are too transparent for them now, right? And so they're scrambling to figure out a way to just get their their shtick to last a little bit longer to kind of shut those pipelines mm. down a little bit and control them to the point where you know they can just keep doing their thing until they die. I feel like that a lot of baby boomers and a lot of like world leaders who are you know in their fifties sixties, um, that's their goal. Is like that's, I, the, that's the other side of it too. The is that quo. these people aren't spring chickens. No. And you think about talking to your parents about technology and trying to teach them how to download a television show for Christ's sakes and how cumbersome that could be. The yeah. easiest things in the world they have a hard time adopting. Yeah, and they're they're afraid of that too, right? They they harshly judge uh subsequent generations as being uh, time wasters and as being like, you know, whatever, this and that. I've heard I've heard it all from baby boomers and like old media guys and stuff like that. It, just a fear, a fear mm. of how fast technology goes and uh, an un unwillingness to change and to try and adapt their their methods to work with that kind of technology and the the increase in information they just they just i remember i was telling you this is a perfect example wandered into a uh, a rap party for a tv show mm. ended up talking to the president of a television production company mm-hmm. um, who is buying me drinks whatever he's throwing his tv money around and i could not pass up the opportunity to ask him about streaming video and netflix and stuff and if he felt threatened he looked me dead in the eye and it's told like, nah. me internet is a fad streaming video is going to go away or we're going to figure out a way to just make it just like tv yeah that was and he he really believed it there was not a, a shred of doubt in his eyes when he told me that mm-hmm. he genuinely believed he was going to go on making fucking tv shows and selling them in the exact same format with the exact same kind of advertisements forever yeah well you could you could argue that youtube is kind of becoming just a tv station so. but do you think that's going to last forever right like a lot of the the initial support for youtube and the people kind of uh helping put it together and help fuel its content creation are going to get tired of having to watch front end ads on every single video they're going to fuck off and start something new when myspace got too ad bloated and had too many things too many distractions to its actual purpose yeah everybody fucked off to facebook because it was a lot easier and i feel like youtube is really starting to push push it just a bit much i'm starting to get to the point where i I don't know whether or not I've been specifically targeted for this ad barrage, mm-hmm. but there's not a single video, no matter how obscure. You don't have that block plus on your computer? Uh, no, I mean, I really should put it back on my computer, oh, yeah. but That's what um, you need. so for the last little while, I've been working without ad blocker plus, and I've just been finding that it's not just the big videos mm. um, that I'm getting ads on. It's every video, yeah. no matter how obscure, no matter how yeah. few the views. I'm watching a video that has 200 views. It's just like some remix of a fucking song, mm-hmm. and I'm getting a three-minute front-end ad. And you know what? You have to blame the people who posted the video, too, because they, they have a choice, ads, yeah. right? Like all of the stuff that I put on the internet, I, don't, I make it non-advertisement-supported because yeah. I don't believe in that model where like you're getting money to... Uh, waste your audience's time and basically interrupt them. You're selling your audience's attention to a company for yeah, money. Yeah, absolutely. And that's how, uh, it, like... I don't, I don't agree with that. The more it happens on YouTube, the more I'm just wondering why someone else isn't trying to build a new service from the... Like, you know, I know it seems daunting because YouTube has this many viewers yeah. and this much bandwidth and blah, 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 blah. So for another company or another, like, group of guys who want to start something new, it can seem very daunting mm-hmm. to try and fight the giant fight the video giant but i feel like 
people would be surprised how many jump ship from YouTube to a new service so long as they can post their videos ad-free and watch videos ad-free. Yeah. That's all I want. I want to be able to watch a few videos in a row without the same fucking advertisements for Downey or for Tide. Yeah. I get the stupidest shit in front of my videos that has nothing to do with it. Why are you trying to sell me, like, bleach yeah. when I'm watching a black metal video or something like that? You know, mm. I'm, it, there's no correlation between ad and content, and it's so just I, intrusive. I would, say, I would say two things. I would say... Uh, uh, the first point is that if you read uh, Seth Godin's stuff, that interruption advertising doesn't make money anymore, and companies are only still paying for it because out of habit. Right. That's there it's isn't the way a television used to to work, and um, they used to get back two dollars for every dollar they spent on advertising, mm-hmm. and they don't really know what else to do, so they're they're still in the habit of it. Yeah. Um. So eventually, it will go away and be replaced by more clever things. I hope so, um, because they need to really kind number of... Number two, when it comes to uh, content creation, I think that a lot of these uh, media guys are also uh, not anticipating the great exodus that's going to happen when people a little bit younger than somebody like Vince Gilligan, mm-hmm. who aren't as... Um, locked in or in the habit of working in the studio system Mm -hmm. when they realize that after their first hit show they can just go to kickstarter and have the fans pay for the next thing around Mm -hmm. and they'll have totally creative control and they'll have complete rights to the thing Mm -hmm. and that's all of the money the trailer park boys have done something really similar recently Mm. because they were having they were having problems with them some money yeah, they they, they were having do trouble with um, the Canadian networks just in general of like one like censorship. They weren't allowed to do the kind of things in their show that they really wanted to, um, and they were constantly fighting with the networks about. Are they paid for by grants? Is that show built around grants or something? Like what the they... new one, the new trailer was? No, what do they need? What what's their where's the censorship censorship coming from? They can't put it. Well, on. it was it was because they were on Showcase for a really long time, which is a pretty um. You know, they they push the limits a bit. Like, Showcase isn't afraid to put some uh, racy shit on their channel, but they do have a limit. Mm. And uh, what what Trail Park Boys wanted to do with their stuff, I guess, went beyond the limits of what Showcase would allow. Mm-hmm. And so they they said, fuck it. They got together some private donors and, like, kickstarted, and they started their own um, content distribution system called SwearNet. <laughs> They made a movie. They made a movie about it. They made a dramatization about like their struggle with Trailer Park Boys and and the rights to it, owning the rights to their own characters, mm-hmm. and how about starting this own their own channel mm-hmm. online to just put whatever fucking content they wanted to mm-hmm. and say and do whatever they felt like doing. Um, Why does it have to be its own channel? Why can't you just put it on YouTube? Uh, again, because then then it's uh it's it's all them, right? Like the ads are chosen by them. If there are any ads, like it's designed and. And presented in a way that is true to the people who are actually creating the content. And there's yeah. nobody between them and you muddying it up, putting something extra on it, changing the way it's presented. It's it's a pure straight-to-your-eyes kind of thing, which yeah. is what they wanted. And then they ended up getting picked up by Netflix as well, who were just like, oh, you know what? If you, we'll just give you... We'll give you a bunch of money. If you want to make a few more seasons money. of yeah, Trailer yeah. Park Boys... Go for it. And mm-hmm. so they're, that's what they're doing. They're going to put out a few more seasons on Netflix. Perfect. And then do a bunch of their own... Uh, their own kind of side projects on this swear net thing. Yeah. Just any kind of characters they come up with or new show ideas, just 
don't have to be afraid about pitching it to somebody. I hope to God Netflix stays advertisement free because that's the obvious next step Ugh. to uh, monetizing that service. I can't because it used to be you had network television and it was advertising supported and cable mm. came out. And for a while, cable didn't have advertisements, but then slowly the advertisements creeped onto cable. Mm. And tier after tier, even though you're paying for the fucking things, you're paying $20, $20 to go to the movies. It's fucking advertisements before the movie now. Yeah. You know, and there's product placements in the movie now. You can't get away from it. These, yeah. They're like fucking vultures. And I, I, yeah, I, hope, I, I hope Netflix really keeps to their their model. Because really, if you think about it, with all those subscribers in all those different countries paying mm. between and now they have a few tiers of Netflix subscription if you want it to play on like multiple devices you have to pay just a bit more to have like well they used to do it it was like you could play to three or four advi- devices at once mm-hmm. um but then they kind of realized that people were just sharing accounts in different households. Like, I could just so. get your Netflix account. So they changed it. So now it's just two maximum devices to encourage more people to subscribe. But it's still like 8 to $10 a month is not very much for us. But it's so long as they have a few million people subscribing, that's millions and millions and millions of reven- dollars of revenue every single month. Yeah. For a service that all they need to do is just like make sure the content is cir- uh, cir- uh, like cycled out. And in and out and in and out, put new stuff on, take some stuff off, um, and every once in a while put out some original content. So long as they just keep doing that, people will be into Netflix. It's a very easy, fast way to just watch something. Like Yeah. My my, my suggestion to them, and I have no idea if this would work, mm. but it would be interesting to take some of the lessons from a network like Kickstarter and see how that could be applied to something like Netflix. Mm-hmm where uh, through surveys and data mining on your choices of the stuff that you're, you're, cl- you're clicking, maybe Netflix could make some sh- suggestions about shows that are, haven't gone into production yet. They're like, mm-hmm. would you be interested in watching this show? Yeah. And you could vote up or down like Reddit style what things Netflix should buy to have produced. Yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah, because then you could have things like, oh, Alan Moore has, suge- has uh, put in a an application to do a show about magic and tarot and psychedelia and stuff like that. Would you be interested in watching that? Upvote. Like, <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> right. Like that thumbs up. Mm-hmm. No, that's brilliant. I actually never thought about the uh, the way that Netflix could just curate its own content through its customers. Right. Anytime you get the opportunity to bring in more data and 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 take a look at it, I think it, it's good, especially when it comes to creative stuff, because oh. the fans know best. And Netflix must have such an edge on TV because, like, you know, how, how have they always judged how popular TV shows are? Nielsen ratings. Mm. You got to be a Nielsen family and you get a box put into your fucking thing and you have to watch a certain number of hours for it to count. And then they take all of those numbers. They say, well, all the Nielsen families were watching Friends. It must be the best show. Let's put more money into that and just put more seasons out. Mm-hmm. But I think if you were to look at the broad stroke and look at everybody who is watching TV, like the Nielsen families might not be exactly representative of what people actually want. Whereas Netflix, they can look at everybody's watching history, exactly how long they watched something before Mm. they turned it off, how many times they rewatched it, what it led them to, if they clicked on anything else and they're related to. They must have a crazy database of just watching information, just like viewer information and what they really like. Yeah. Superior to TV by a long shot. Mm -hmm. If they're smart, they'd be correlating it and figuring out how to make it work for them yeah 
which I think is a big problem with data mining these days is that people are all amped up to mine all the data and like, you know, get all the social media information, but they have no fucking idea how to correlate it or what to do with it. Yeah. And I think that it's a mistake in uh, anticipating that if you have enough data, you can start to read minds and be able to control people. Like the thing I'm suggesting is that all of this be put um, and targeted towards allowing the audience to guide what the content on the station is Mm -hmm. because that's more in line with the philosophy of the internet. Two-way conversation. Two-way conversation. It's not just a pipeline. leading people in a direction that they want to go. Um, The, like you said, the, the way that the industrial complex worked before is, um, you know, television, it's not really an entertainment platform in my view like for me, when I see the way television is used, it's most popular with people who have a lot of jobs that are kind of soul crushing and they want to come home and they want to turn on the television and turn their brain off. Zone out, yeah. And so they're they're looking for something that's not that challenging that they can that'll let, allow them to relax. Mm-hmm. Um, I found it really interesting. I was. I took a vacation with uh, my friend and uh, he had just gone through like a very traumatic breakup. Right. And um, he's kind of, he's a little bit more towny than I am just because uh, he kind of stayed in Hamilton. Right. After I left and um, he's, he's really smart. He's really good dude. But um, when it comes to stuff like culture, Mm -hmm. it's just a little bit more kind of mainstream. Right. right? Okay. And, um, the funny thing about it was we were driving in the car and uh, we had both made mixtapes for the ride. And um, when I put on something like, uh, I think it was a Tom Waits song, mm-hmm. he had to turn it off. And I think that the the, the misconception about kind of so-called towny people or the people who don't, who aren't interested in kind of like high art is that they're um, Philistines or that they're, um, not sophisticated enough to understand good art. Right. And my point of view in this circumstance was that actually what it is, is people from those backgrounds are much more sensitive to the stuff than we are. Okay. And when they hear a a powerful ballad that has some, some deep truth in it Mm -hmm. or a song that's like genuinely sad, they can't take it. They can't handle it. It's too intense. Right. Um, they and I been... feel like I feel like that's that's why the content on television is kind of like a middle of the road pablum. Neutral. It's, it's that pretty like, neutral. People who have real problems, people who have existential um, crises going on from like not being fulfilled with their lives and stuff, they don't want to watch uh, dramas on television. Yeah, why be that reminded? Remind them of yeah. that kind of stuff. They want to have a picture of the world come through the television that. Um, classifies or pacifies those anxieties and yeah. stuff paints a paints a bit of a more beige it's picture. always kids like us that have been um you've been kind of like your life is more fulfilled when you've watched a lot of content read a lot of books mm-hmm. had a lot of crazy experiences um romances um fights failures uh, dramas, successes, failures yeah. successes you're kind of um, living the modern equivalent of becoming a sailor and going off on adventures and stuff in right. the, the previous era. 
once you've gone through that, you have a bit of a thick skin when it comes to drama and stuff. So you're like, give me the intense stuff. You I want to see extremes. fucking House of Cards and stuff. I want to I want to see the um, uh, life on the edge. That's what I want for my entertainment. Whereas like somebody who's hasn't had those experiences, they're too sensitive for it. They don't. Yeah, I I actually I agree a lot because uh, I ha- I know some people recently who like I tried to introduce Game of Thrones to who are sort of more of those. Uh, they want something to pacify them. They're mm-hmm. looking for something that's a little less edgy. And I found like the scenes that disturbed them most really like didn't seem to bother me at all. Mm-hmm. Even in one of those newer episodes, like Jamie rapes Cersei like beside their dead son's corpse. And I like creepy. I was like, Yeah, that's that's creepy, but the image of it and the actual like the execution of it didn't make me feel uncomfortable. But apparently it it's made very operatic. Yeah. It's it it, yeah. it's it fits into the story, right? Like it's that's not the worst thing that's happened in that fucking world by a long shot or in the world in general, and I'm aware of that. So to me, it just doesn't seem that shocking. But to somebody who maybe spends a lot of their time watching How I Met Your Mother or something like that, just like a sitcom that's very like middle of the road, that doesn't have too many edgy moments, that could be a really fucked up scene that really just messes with their head a little bit. Yeah, um, yeah and I, I maybe take advantage of the fact that I, I'm so desensitized yeah. by the internet. Yeah. But like that's why it's it's not from anything else but because the internet fucking m- morphed my brain over the years. I saw horrible shit I'll never be able to unsee, but now nothing shocks me or surprises me. <laughs> Very few things, anyways. Yeah, and you can never really break out of the um, the mindset that what you're watching is actors on a set telling you a story, right? You know, whereas if you're a bit more um, sensitive to stuff, you can kind of get into the show enough that you your brain gets transported, and suddenly it's you are Cersei, yeah, being like raped. The the uh, suspension of disbelief is a little is a little easier for somebody who's like not so too powerful. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It's interesting. Can I uh, can I pour a bit of that coffee into a? I actually drank. I drank it all. Been, oh I'm my sorry, god. You pounded that. Yeah, I really needed it. I'm uh, I'm currently going through sobriety, sobriety time where like I'm trying not to smoke weed, which is like for ten years pretty much a daily thing for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, that sort of chemical replacement feeling is pretty strong today, where I've just been pounding coffee all day <laughs> just to tr- trick my brain into thinking that I'm like this giving is the it new what it's drug brain. You're gonna get, gonna get, become good friends with this new drug. Fucking turn into Dave Grohl and just be drinking it right out of the pot. I Fresh had, pots. I had a friend that was in visiting from New York, and uh, she was trying to quit smoking weed, and uh, she decided to go to Alcoholics Anonymous, right, and Cocaine Anonymous, and uh, she walked into the room and she was immediately. Uh, you know, browbeaten by the, the actual uh, drug addicts. Right. Uh, it's like that scene. What was it? Uh, is that from Half Baked? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He yeah. goes, "Have you ever sucked dick for weed?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally the same. And yeah. uh, after a little bit of research, she found out there's a marijuana anonymous. Okay. And she went in there and was right at home because it was all musicians and all fine artists, and they were all saying, "I got to kick this weed." It's been fun, but it, I'm using up all my money, and I don't that, even get high anymore off of it. That's a that's a big thing for me is just the the sheer cost. I sort of realized I started doing the math. I was like, "Fuck, this is worse than a smoking habit." Mm. I'm smoking like ten 
plus dollars a day. Yeah. So that's like three hundred a month. Yeah. Times that by the number of months in a year, it's like holy fuck! I've spent in a decade, potentially like somehow more than I've made. <laughs> I don't, I'm not sure how that happened, but I think I may have spent more than I made on weed. <laughs> and you'll get back into that area where um, you're lightweight again, which is you exciting get, to me. And because I get stoned off of like one puff of weed, it right? I got a nugget me. from Cameron. About as big as my fingernail. Yeah. And it's lasted me like four and a half months. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like uh, every two weeks or whatever, if you feel like getting baked and watching a TV show or whatever, yeah. you take one puff of weed. That's that's yeah. another thing for me where like uh, I'm just rethinking its, its place in my life where for a really long time it was just sort of a constant, right? To sort of keep my anxiety at bay and to keep myself mm-hmm. sort of level, it was like... There was no such thing as a situation where I, w- I wouldn't smoke weed in it. Mm-hmm. Like, I'd go to a fucking funeral high on weed. No one would know. Yeah. I'd be okay, but it would just be something for me to sort of keep mm-hmm. me level. And now I'm just sort of, 10 years later, looking back and being like, man, you know, there's a lot of growth I could have been doing over that time. Situations in which I should have been dealing with it and... and <sighs> struggling through it you know what Mm. i mean like things that should have mattered more to me but because i was smoking weed and leveled out quote unquote Mm -hmm. that uh i i don't think i learned as much from those situations as i potentially could have right um yeah but yeah so between money and uh i'm also starting to wonder it didn't used to do this to me before like really affect my um my energy levels Mm -hmm. and also uh my general comfort now, now, sometimes I feel like I, I get stoned and I, I, I start worrying as opposed to calming down, mm-hmm. which has been a really concerning thing for me where I just start thinking more and more and more about my life and be like, fuck, I just got to slow down on this weed and fucking chill out of the bit, I think. Yeah. Well, your body, your body changes over time and um, uh, I think that the one like kind of beneficial part about weed um you know, from the psychedelic community, they tell they talk about how like the paranoia that some people get when they smoke weed is actually the the herb like healing you, right? Like your body's telling you that you Something got some you shit do, that yeah. you got to deal with, right? Um, so th- yeah, it's, it's that's good that you're listening to what your chemistry's saying. Yeah, and this is this is genuinely the first time in all, and I've I've tried to quit before or stop for a little while Mm -hmm. but it's never been for the right reason it was because either a girlfriend had wanted me to at Mm -hmm. one point or because i felt like i was maybe being judged by people around me for not being as productive as i could be yeah and uh and then also being challenged like oh why don't you just see what it's like right um but all three of those times it wasn't for me and it wasn't because I had sort of initiated it. Mm-hmm. So I, did, I, ne- I never lasted more than a day and a half. I would just be like, fuck this. Just get stoned again. Like, right. so yeah, now I'm on day two, three or whatever. And, uh, it's, it was weird. I did not sleep at all last night. I uh, laid in bed for 12 hours and maybe slept for two, yeah. which has been like the hardest thing is smoking myself. What do you think about that idea about how uh, you have to replace one addiction with a new addiction? Like I think that's needs, completely true. There needs to be like a there's a niche in there that needs to be filled by something. Your your brain needs balance, right? And like you've created a, a certain balance through uh a, a, all that time of me smoking weed, ten years, right? Mm-hmm. My brain has gotten very very used to it, mm-hmm. to the rhythm of it, how it makes me feel, um, 
you know, how much I smoke of it through the day, how I kind yeah. of prep myself for bed. My brain is very like dependent on that schedule now. Mm-hmm. And even breaking it for a few days makes me feel kind of crazy. Right. And uh, like I can't sleep and that I'm like really wired. Um, I feel like I'll get, I'll get over that. I'll get past that element of it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the whole coffee replacement thing for me was just like, that doesn't even make sense, right? Like, cause I'm, if I'm not sleeping, I really shouldn't be giving myself any sort of, uh, like caffeine or any sort of yeah, accelerant, yeah, yeah. but it, it's almost, uh, subconscious. Like whenever someone was like, Oh, you want a coffee? I was like, yeah, fuck yeah. I want a coffee. And yeah, I probably had like four today. Already. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, um, I suspect that has something to do with not being able to sleep more than the giving of the pot. Yeah. Yeah. Probably a little bit, but just the chemical replacement and even just trying to trick your brain into thinking it's getting what it wants. Mm-hmm. I feel so many people quit drugs and they immediately hit exercising and they get really addicted to it. And it's not because they had this like hidden fucking workout beast inside of them the whole time. It's because their brain is like, I want those fucking drugs. Mm-hmm. And like working out is close enough yeah, for the brain. It's right? a like, positive. It's a positive addiction. Yeah. So I just, you know, more sex, more working out. Nice. More uh, killing machine. Just Yeah. Just become a crazy killing machine. Uh, yeah, I just trying to get my shit fucking together. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know. Yeah, you want to take a ten minute break? Yeah, let's do that. I'm break gonna get a break. Break need, a break. I need a little bit of water. Oh, mm. I know. Ooh. I promise Ooh. to slow down on this weed. <laughs> Yeah, we need to play some Nate Dog up next, and we need to do a, a segment with a bit of levity. We've been talking about all the hardcore and stuff. We just trying to make you see. Nobody does it better. I'm sitting I don't need to press record again because I never press stop. Ah. Oh, damn. We got to get drumming on this cast. We got to go to that fucking uh, escape room, that escape room game. We got to bust out of that shit in 20 minutes, and then we got to get drum on the podcast. Yeah, there's definitely a... Whoa. This is, this is an official Record call for guests. And if anybody thinks they can fucking keep up <laughs> what is the challenge baby you need, keep up? you need a power bladder you need to be able to hold your bladder for about an hour and 10 minutes and then a second round of hour and 10 minutes the only man charismatic enough so far has been mike juno yeah he loved it he loved it i'm gonna he has an open uh, open pass yeah always i'm also thinking too with all this like equipment we just really need to start doing on-location podcasts. We should just go to people's house randomly and say, like, we're recording at your house. That might just You're be a, that might be a way to get people... Kick uh, in the door. Yeah, it, we, instead of people pussying out because I tell them I'll come over to my house at this time, and they're like, oh, sorry, something came up, and they can't come. Yeah. So, uh, yeah we'll just arrive on their doorstep. We'll just come We'll here. bust in like Kool-Aid, man. We'll be like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It starts now. Get out. Macho Man is coming. <laughs> you ever notice that fucking Kool- the Kool-Aid Man and Macho Man and Randy Savage were pretty much the same character? Totally. I oh, think- yeah. <laughs> Step into a Slim Jim. <laughs> Who came first? Uh, probably Kool-Aid Man. I think honestly, probably yeah. Macho Man. I think Kool-Aid Man is, is derivative. <laughs> Yeah, but okay, so we set up the podcast at somebody's house. The person tells us to fuck off. We don't leave. We're recording the episode on their outside, outside their door, putting the weaving the microphone 
coming to him, coming live from, coming to you live from his bed, denim, half asleep, <laughs> half drunk. Oh God, that'd be great. Mm-hmm. Denim, you're next, buddy. <laughs> this, is, this is for you. What about Crawford? Crawford doesn't want to do it. Oh no, he does. He's just always working. Oh. He's, he works till like midnight. Like he, we have to do a podcast at midnight. We can to make do it on work. the weekend. Yeah, true. Or does he work on the weekends too? Nope, he's usually off. Okay. And like now that he's it's the perfect person to do the podcast uh, uh, bust where we just bust into his house and set up. Yo, the motherfucker! <laughs> well, I know you thought you were gonna relax today, but fucking, we're about to fuck your world up, baby. <laughs> Um, and now, yeah, I think uh, some outdoor podcast too. Like, uh, I It'd really be fun to do it in in Bellwoods. Yeah, whatever. that's exactly yeah. what I was about to say because mm-hmm. I'm already there three days a week, just sitting around in the sun. So we may as well record a podcast episode. Mm-hmm. Um, what yeah. kind of battery pack will we need to plug uh, this business into? If we're only recording like for battery. if we're only recording for like a maximum of two hours, like I feel like that built in battery would probably be uh, all right. I don't know. Or we just make sure to. What kind of batteries do you take? Is it lithium? You can put lithium batteries in it. I'd like to I'd like to have a camping battery or something just in case. I hate yeah. those fucking technical difficulties where yeah. you get everything in line and then fucking thing doesn't work. The first four <laughs> episodes oh, of our podcast. Uh, <laughs> podcast. That was a fucking ruined ruined idea. And that was yeah, that was the first beautiful talk with Mike Juno. Probably some of our best material flushed down the drain. Hip hop trading cards. Oh god. Wrestling. There was tons of great stuff in there. That was a cool night. AGO should do that more often, though. They do, it, they do it first Thursdays every first Thursday that, of the month. that Market Bazaar thing that they were doing? Mm, I, yeah, I don't know if they're going to go back to that format. It got a lot of uh, bad reviews, I think. Oh, uh, it was poorly curated. Everybody was very confused about where the music happen, yeah. were. The music was in a separate spot, and the the artists were kind of all over the place. Uh, yeah, I think it was. I think it was a bit... A bit poorly curated, and that they could have chosen, thi- like things, uh, artists that had work or installations that would have worked better in that sort of bizarre setup. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I feel like some of it was a bit too just like straight up retail, where it's like, "Come buy my shit." Right. But it's like you, you don't need that. We well, don't like Comic Con almost. Yeah, yeah. yeah that like we, we that's not the point of something like that, right? Like we don't just want to buy stickers with your stuff on it like mm-hmm. give me something interesting yeah show me something do something interesting for me mm-hmm. at least like we are not i mean not toot my own heart or our own horn but we were probably the the weirdest thing going on in that room and everybody was confused by what we were doing yeah we really needed an on-air sign and uh it would have worked better if it was kind of hooked up to Ustream or something where yeah. you could log on with your phone and hear what was going on in the microphone. Yeah. We'll do, we'll do a, a, a second version where we figure things out. Like it, it, uh, it was obviously like a failed kind of experiment. Yeah. But, uh, I learned some stuff from it, and I learned what equipment that I needed to do well, stuff properly. We just, yeah. we just assumed too much mm-hmm. by thinking that two people, Wearing headphones, speaking into microphones, we're doing something important because <laughs> of the number of people who walked up being like, "What are you guys doing? What are, are you guys recording? What are you for? doing with those microphones?" It's like, uh, "Are you talking to each other? Or are you talking to me?" Yeah, it, it did obviously did not seem very obvious to anyone else involved. Yeah, that's um, why. That's why the Q107 booth, when it goes on location, it's got the big sign that says "On Air" with a fucking light bulb. Yeah, because otherwise, people don't understand. They're Don't not, talk to me when I'm not, in the middle of a sentence. They, these <laughs> newfangled equipment. What What's a microphone for? Yo, well, what you doing over there? You interviewing a uh, man on the street. You want to, uh, can I be on your show? Oh, sure. Man. And, you know, in retrospect, we were saying, like, we should have had a hot seat where we right. just had a lineup of people. And if 
we took advantage of the crowd, we could have had people lining up to jump in on the conversation. And we did. And we had, that was actually really nice about how, like, your friend kind of wandered over and sat in for mm-hmm. a while, and uh, Juno was in and out of it, and I feel like that's a good idea, but it just needs to be a little more uh, clear what we're doing, and we need to plan for yeah. a little bit better. And we could, we could totally set up a format, too, where... Um, you set up the podcast stuff in kind of like a green room type area. Oh yeah. That's yeah. a little bit separate from the crowd noise mm-hmm. and you pull people from the party and, uh, and rap with them about whatever bullshit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whatever seems to come up. Yeah. Yeah. All these things, all these things are good ideas. Oh yeah. Podcasts, podcast, podcast, podcast. So where you've been working? I'm back. I'm at a restaurant called Wallace and co. Cause I was working there last summer. It's a sweet little spot for anybody who wants to get a really delicious brunch. It's near Bloor and Lansdowne's on Wallace Ave. But yeah. Chaka chaka. It's a really nice little spot. I, I, I tried to do different stuff all winter. Worked at like a condo company and like did door-to-door charity collections and stuff like that. And it was just so soul-sucking. Mm. It's funny how something as, as dirty and uh, like greasy as working in a restaurant and like being on the line and like um, dishwashing and stuff like that. It's somehow better for your soul and better for your general perspective than going into an office and like trying you meet to meet more interesting people for sure. And just like it's a lighter environment, I'm able to like talk to people I know and like you know the the weird sterile environment of trying to sell condos to people from Hong Kong is a very very strange atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And I didn't speak Cantonese, so I was immediately ousted and <laughs> just going into work every day to a wait place. a minute. You're not appropriate to sell these condos to these Asian people. Well, that seemed that seemed to be the general uh, mood in the office when I came. It in. It makes that, sense. I mean, if if the retail if the condo market's all going to. Um, and new immigrants, then yeah. you need somebody who's bilingual to be able to. Yeah, why hire me? Why even have shit. me in there? Get in there. It was it was funny walking through Tim Hortons on the uh, on the coffee break and and seeing all of the uh, people selling uh, fucking hookah pipes out of their briefcases oh, it, to yeah, different people at Tim Hortons. A guy giving a demo for a vaporizer to one person in the back of a Tim Hortons. It's like it's, it comes with all the accessories. You get the lube, lubricant. The, lube, the <laughs> You get the you get the the spit uh, spit valve, complimentary vaporizers and e-cigarettes. Man, the hu- hugest trend with like totally understudied. Like the effects of of that weird like e-cigarette juice on people. <laughs> it yet somehow to be. ends up being worse for you than oh, the actual s- tobacco. S- I guess in the in the states, there's a. Uh, some of them are turning out to be like really potent neurotoxins. What? Yeah. So they're they're trying really hard to regulate them. The because, synthetic uh, flavoring. Yeah. They just end up not regulating it, and it's it's and also just a weird poison. They're just straight up marketed at mm-hmm. fucking teenagers. <laughs> just get your chocolate, tobacco, nicotine stuff. Smoke it in your cool electronic pipe. You can smoke anywhere, man. God no. I would I'd probably get caffeine uh, cartridges for it if they were available. Powdered mind free basin my caffeine. Powdered alcohol coming to a fucking store near you in the next. Oh couple of years. no! They said they weren't going to do it, weren't they? Uh, they it's going to happen. And yeah. now, now the buy reci- it on the internet. The recipe's out too, right? Like someone released how to make it, how to how to make your own powdered alcohol. So even if it doesn't come out really regulated in stores, it's going to become a popular thing. Uh, far out. It doesn't matter. I don't know why they try to control a lot of this stuff. Ah, uh, yeah. I mean, it's sort of a. It, it's based on that idea, the North American idea, that one bad apple spoils the bunch. You get one guy drunk at a fucking 
at a baseball game, then you have to charge a lot for booze so that not everybody gets crazy out of control. But then it ruins the fun for everybody else, the people who can drink responsibly and don't want to pay 10 bucks for a beer. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's that's really what the pricing of beer at like baseball games and hockey games is actually it's all to about. To prevent the crowd from getting too drunk. Absolutely. Because ah. everybody, everybody has to check themselves. We were at a Blue Jays game last summer and fucking... Kansas Steam Whistle were eleven dollars, <laughs> and I was like, I could buy a six pack of cans for eleven dollars. So every time I wanted a beer, I had to really consider like, do I need another one yet? Do yeah. I really like want to drink another one of these beers? And I'll just pop an Oxycontin instead. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's that idea. One bad apple spoils the bunch, and everyone has to suffer. So like mm-hmm. now we all have to have our liquor very like controlled and regulated by the government because we're too stupid to fucking deal with it ourselves mm-hmm. it's the same with uh outlawing drinking in parks and stuff like that oh oh we can't have kids drinking in trinity bellwoods it's, i hang out there all the time and the i maybe in four years seen two people who were like way too drunk and had to be dragged away by their friends yeah and every time you hear about kids drinking in bellwoods and like the neighborhood getting all up in arms about it, it's like oh Craziness, just crazy how drunk insanity. It, how much of it do you think the complaints are coming from local bars and things that are like, "Fuck, we gotta get, gotta do something about this Bellwoods." There's too many people <laughs> having too much fun on uh, the LCBO's dime. We gotta, we gotta shut that shit down so they all get forced back into our our patios. Uh, I hope not. I have a feeling that that's where it's really coming from because it's such a broad space. Yeah. That. The residential areas are so far removed from Bellwoods yeah. itself that I can't imagine property owners going like, those teenagers, that well, park is supposed to be for squirrels. We don't want anybody in there enjoying it. Well, it's such a it's such a, an insult to the it's people. It's supposed to who... be a toilet for my dog, and that is all. <laughs> that is That is how a lot of people use it, right? Like, the people who live in that neighborhood who, you know, might even have backyards or just fuck, take their dogs to shit at Bellwoods. <laughs> and some of the complaints you hear, like last year when they had that meeting, just like, oh, taking walking my kids to the park and the smell of marijuana hits us. And how do I explain that to my kid? It's like like an adult. Yeah, you sit down you and you talk to your kids, kid. And, <laughs> some people smoke marijuana. You know, trying to hide your Julie. kids from booze and pot is not going to work forever. And trying to ban it from public parks is fucking stupid. Mm. Because, you know, especially in a city like Toronto where that's a, that's a lot of people's backyard. Look, get the microphone a little bit closer. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's yeah, a lot of people's good. backyards. Mm-hmm. You know, like Bellwoods is treated by a lot of people because they don't have sufficient green space. Or air conditioning. Or anything, yeah. right? Like, go hang out in a big green space. And what would you do in your backyard? Yeah. You might have a snack. You might drink some beer, smoke a bowl, hang out with your friends. It's the same thing. It's yeah. just in a public space. And so it's an affront to the people who live around it. Like, oh, my God. How dare you go to a public space and, like, do these casual fun things with your friends? Mm-hmm. Fuck off. Like... <laughs> If you don't like it, then don't go there. I mean, I know that's kind of that's kind of selfish of me to say, but like, really, it's there's... it's it's also on on a basic level to how uh, you know how like some places, some bars, some places you used to hang out, you go like I no one goes there anymore. It's too popular, right? You can kind of get that vibe from Bellwoods too. Like I can imagine uh, somebody who hangs out in high park a lot like high park this time of year is a perfect example because the cherry blossoms are out and so it's so everybody and their fucking dog is down at high park for the for the one time they come wandering around wandering around climbing all over the cherry trees breaking branches climbing around with like their three foot long telephoto lenses taking photos of 
uh, cherry blossoms and their kids standing in front of the cherry blossoms. It's such a weird ritual because you're not actually going to the park to enjoy it and then take a couple of photos to keep that memory. It's like the whole reason that they go to the park is to, to get the photo. Cool, to get the nice photo photos. in the park and put it on Facebook and then you go home get the fuck out of there. Yeah. But yeah, like for a lot of people who go to Hyde Park throughout the year, it's kind of a, a solemn place where you can forget that you're in the city for a few hours right. while you're jogging Absolutely. or while you're sitting by the lake. Yeah. And um, when it gets jammed to the tits with uh, tourists and strollers and, and uh, people's vans and stuff, the whole vibe of it changes. And I'm sure a lot of people from the neighborhood completely ignore it for that week. Yeah. That week that the cherry blossoms are around. There's I'm not going there. Yeah. I made I made the mistake crazy. of I made the mistake of going to High Park last year when the cherry blossoms came out and it was such a, a thoroughly unenjoyable experience being around all those fa- like they they had closed down the public washrooms or whatever like or one of them just wasn't open yet this big center one yeah they, and it wasn't open last weekend when we went down yeah so the fun game for me eventually after like okay i can't enjoy this park for being solemn and quiet and green so then it just became a, a hilarious game of watch all the people who don't understand english go and try and get into the bathroom <laughs> but there's just like one it just says in english out of order or just like not open on it but all these people who are there who like you know probably don't read english walking up and just being so confused that was the only fun part of it be a fun hidden camera show too to uh, track them subtly and see where they decide to pee oh yeah being denied and that's because you, you can see them scanning they're like oh god where's the good place to pee and the park's too busy oh, it's Jesus. too busy there's, there's no... a person behind every tree yeah how am i gonna pull this off Fun game. Where, where to pee in High Park. I I was playing that game. I didn't want to... For some reason, I'm a little bit pee-shy when it comes to the porta-potties. I find them kind of disgusting. They're fucking weird bacteria even, shits. Not even, like, taking a shit in. Even peeing down that plastic hole and watching it drip down and uh, the insufficient sink and the little pump thing they got on the insufficient sink. You so, paint quite a picture, Matisse. Yeah, you know. so I I avoided, they had kind of a, a string of nine uh, porta-potties set up in front of the closed washroom what at high park for the cherry blossom festival <laughs> Why did they just open the bathroom because they're crazy. <laughs> There's probably some guy who's only hired from um, June 1st to like to September 1st, September 1st yeah. and he's the guy that turns the washroom on and he hasn't started yet so there's no washroom that going is in absolute insanity the fact that any washrooms are closed in a public area yes. the second spring hits is crazy and the fact that it, you know responsible citizens can't just like cut the lock off that door and just cur- turn a couple of pipes and it's like there it's running again yeah you it's know? not that hard to fucking and that's just more jobs. Just hire a few extra people to do the work. If, like, you know, yeah, maybe there's some practical reason why it wasn't open yet. But anyways, they had a line of porta potties, and I didn't want to use them, so uh, I was kind of tracking around. And every time I would uh, go behind a bush or a tree, there was like a kid with a super soaker, or there was, <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're all gorilla style playing games and stuff in the yeah. park and uh yeah i couldn't get away from it i eventually went to that grenadier restaurant and oh uh, yeah and just went. that was a funny scene there was like 17 women all lined up waiting for the ladies room yeah guys room completely empty and i yeah. walk in and i'm just like i come out of the door i'm like ladies 
It's fucking 21st century. Just go in the men's room. Yeah. You're liberated. Don't even worry about it. Yeah. But they wouldn't do it. Yeah, it's kind of funny. I don't know. And it's funny how, like, in, in Toronto, like, in the public places, there's uh, one of the other complaints about Bellwoods is all oh, public urination. Open another bathroom. There's only one bathroom in that whole park, a park to service hundreds of people. Open one more bathroom, and maybe people won't be peeing behind those bushes anymore. Mm-hmm. It's not a matter of uh, people being uncivilized. You just force them into that situation when i'm faced with the predicament of the bathroom is closed and pissing my pants and pissing my pants i'm definitely <laughs> going behind the bush i'm not gonna piss my pants for oh, the city fuck. i had an emergency uh, a few weeks ago i was i was down in like parkdale or something midday like 12 30 i got enough a streetcar or something yeah and you get that weird panic where you're like oh, i'm i'm 15 20 minutes away from my house and i'm not gonna make it yeah. <laughs> and you start scanning around and trying to find a restaurant or something but it's all residential or it's like places that are closed yeah and it's broad daylight so you can't just like run down an alley and start pissing you can, but someone might see you and yeah. say something about it yeah i was very close i ended up finding a bar that was that was open yeah and uh and using that but oh it it was close and there's then, not enough especially in a city in like this right with like the sheer number of people who disrespect bathrooms in in restaurants so few restaurants or stores are willing to let you walk in and just go right for the bathroom they're always going to be like no you have to buy something or you have to get the key from someone because there are the uncivilized people out there who go into public bathrooms and shit all over the walls and ruin it for everybody that one bad apple spoils for the bunch again some crazy <laughs> asshole spreads his shit and then the the owner says, I'm never letting that happen again. Yeah. And keeps the key to the bathroom uh, behind the counter. I know it all too well. Yeah. If he, my mom worked at Tim Hortons for 15 years Ugh. and she had, uh, she said that's daily occurrence. It's like, Why? Why can't people control their fucking bodily fluids? I like, don't know. It must be some sort of uh, Freudian thing where they, they do it on purpose. It's the only thing I can imagine. Oh, I think, yeah. Uh, I, know some, I know some people who, who worked at like H&M. And places like that, these stores that are like kind of middle of the road where H&M is like affordable enough that um, you get kind of a mix of like kind of really poor people and like not so poor people shopping at Mm H&M. And apparently like regular occurrences of people just like shitting in the dressing rooms. What? Fucking Ambo told me one time that like some girl just came in and shit in a plastic bag and left it in the in the dressing room, and then oh, like people just ain't no good. Ain't no good. <laughs> ain't no, and then it ruins it for the rest of us. And now we all have to be like, where the fuck am I gonna pee? Yeah. And it's, you should get some hazard pay, some sort of bonus if you have to clean up the shit in the the stall at H and M. Psychologically, is it the manager to, that does it, or do they uh, delegate I that? I don't know. And that's a hard task to delegate because psychologically the idea of cleaning up someone else, like a human person's shit, yeah. is fucked up. Like yeah, I yeah, can't yeah, deal yeah. with it. At one of the Manning parties, someone, nameless someone, I know who it was, <laughs> but but I won't say his name to spare him the embarrassment, decided to go and shit in the alley between the houses. Oh, and just no. just the idea that it was it was from a human made it so gut-wrenching to try and clean it up like i could i almost couldn't bring myself to do it because it was that that low point of like i'm cleaning up after human shit right now yeah there's not a price in the world you could pay me to do this and yet years ago when i was living on parkside the uh the sewer pipe to our house ruptured and the whole uh basement filled up with like raw sewage there's like turds floating everywhere and you'll never see happier people 
than you know a plumber that's making a hundred grand a year. They call it brown gold. Oh, they, yeah. they call it down. It's like sure, I'll clean it up. They don't even blink, right? So it's totally just a, a psychosomatic thing, and it's it's all just based on uh, your background and stuff. Yeah. But I get the same thing. I'm I'm very uh, sensitive when it comes to that. And you you get into situations where like you walk into a Starbucks and you open up the stall and you're like, whoop, oh, there's a no dice, yeah, no dice. <laughs> disaster in there. When I was at my brother's wedding, um, one of his friends was sort of like I hadn't seen him in a really long time, and he was sort of catching me up on what had been going on in his life. <laughs> And uh, he worked in the shit industry for a while. And he was like, you know, a lot of people don't want to have to hear this. Don't have to hear where, like, the fertilizer for farms comes from. But, you know, when you got a big industrial septic tank, they have to be, like, reinforced and redesigned every so often. Which means that they have to get an engineer to come Mm, in and to look at them. But that engineer is not going to go anywhere near that tank if it's got even the remote stink of shit or, like, a residue of shit on it. So there's guys who have to go in clean all the shit out, take, like completely empty the septic tank, and then scrub it from the inside. Make it clean enough that an engineer will come and like grace his presence. You know, be able to get past that door and go inside. The Lord is visiting. So what happens to all that human Send shit? Send in the serfs. It gets fucking shipped off to Ontario farms and put into the fields because it's like the best fertilizer. Oh. And, it, you know, how many people would really want to hear that? Of Oh, all the food that you eat? is fertilized with your neighbor's shit. How would you feel about that? I don't... Well, I already knew that they were using pig shit for a lot of stuff, right. so I don't I don't think it's that weird. Um, yeah, I, I think that as long as it's cured, you know, that's the, that's the only concern, right? Like, you gotta yeah. let manure cure so that the bad bacteria dies off and yeah. stuff. That's fine, whatever. Yeah, it didn't really bother me, it's but it was... It's called the food chain, Brendan. Yeah. <laughs> It was just interesting to hear that, you know, his whole job was to make make a shit tank clean enough for an engineer to set foot in it. And oh, then, so he was the guy scrubbing the shit tanks. Yeah. He wasn't the, he was the, the engineers one. inspecting them afterwards. No, yeah. He had the uh, unfortunate yeah. job of having to go in and really make that make that shit tank sparkle. Isn't it bizarre that the people who work the hardest end up being paid the least? Like, I bet you the engineer that comes in afterwards makes twice the money of the guy that has more to than, clean the, more than the shit off the walls. I would think maybe even more than twice. Why do we do that to people? <laughs> that's just the way that uh, that I think that's just the way that our value system uh, has been built up. You know, these these high level jobs like being a doctor and like being an engineer and uh, all these things you have to go to university for. Yeah, um, they're clean, smart, like efficient jobs. They yeah. deserve like the top money and like gritty, shitty jobs. It's like fuck you. You're already dumb and poor. But it's bizarre because you end up like. Uh, you graduate all these people who are really talented mm-hmm. out of the, the positions where they're actually doing work mm-hmm. and you put them in management scenarios where they don't work anymore. Yeah. And then you wonder why the, the systems lose quality year after year. Yeah. I feel like one of the, the, the big lessons of the Great Depression that we haven't reconciled with is that after the banking collapses in the 30s, millions of really, really smart people that would have, under normal sec- circumstances, graduated into management positions and not done any real work. Mm-hmm. They were forced into the real economy, and they got union jobs, and they got jobs as um, you know policemen and firefighters, and and uh, and they elevated all of those jobs. Um, they elevated the education level and the um, 
requirements, the, prerequisites for the, the um, natural skill, the yeah. natural intelligence level of all of those industries mm-hmm. by two or three pegs. And that's why you had things like the labor movement and stuff happen at that time, because these guys who um, under our economy would have been in management positions where they're repressing workers and driving down wages and doing all the shitty things. Yeah. They were involved in the unions and stuff and helping um, elevate those positions. Right. And I feel like one of, one of the, the great shames or one of the great wasted um, organizational things in our current economy is that we take people who are really bright and we feel like we have to keep on pushing them up the ladder to the point where they're not involved in any of the real work that's going on in the companies. Yeah, that's, that's, that might it's actually a funny you know, thing to do. That's a lot of people's goals, right? They want to get a job, work their way up the ladder till they get to the point where their job becomes mindless and just task delegation. And then they just burn out the clock until they can retire and do nothing at all. Mm. That's it's almost the goal set up from high school of like oh retirement is your second teenage yeah. teenage years so you just got to grind you got to get to the top of whatever position you choose to be in where you can just fuck off and it's not it doesn't hurt the company anymore right like you've gotten to a point where yeah. you're not doing the hands on work and you're not designing anything you're not putting much input into anything and so you're just burning out the clock until you can retire how many people have just like striven all their lives to get those jobs yeah. That's a, the wrong way of doing it. Yeah, I mean, I think that the the emerging middle class um, from Gen Y is going to be people who are doing things like app development and stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Where you're building, you put together a team of people um, who are equals, who have all decided to di- divide up tasks on like a larger thing. Yeah. You make that thing, you send it off into the world. If it's an app or whatever, um, that's passive income. Like mm-hmm. at, after it's live, it you know, little bits of money are trickling in forever. Yeah. And um, you do it that way where uh, there's no need for middle management. Like middle management is such a stupid um, modern um, modern level. Like it, it doesn't uh, it doesn't add anything. It's like the asshole layer of employment mm-hmm. where like you're not doing the work anymore. You're just telling other people how to do it. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, uh, that classic thing, you know, like a, a boss tells people what to do and a leader guides them through it. Yeah, you lead by them. example. Right. And they're, I just, even a company like Interaxon, mm-hmm. which is, you know, making that Muse headband, um, which I get to be at a test and I'm pretty happy about that. Boop. Whoop. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> you know, there, it seems Concentrate. like. Relax. Concentrate. Relax. relax. It seems like their team is built up of people who all have a, a great mutual respect for one another. They all have their own individual talents, which they're willing to to accept and uh, and capitalize on. Um, and it doesn't really seem like anybody involved in that company is striving to be the guy who just eventually gets to sit around and reap the benefits. Yeah. It, it, it seems like... Uh, they're all in it for the long haul. They all mm-hmm. want to do the work. They want to be involved in the design of the project. They want to hear the feedback. They want to, it's just, that's a very inspiring thing. When you see a company full of people who treat their contemporaries as equals and nobody is trying to get the leg up so they can be boss. Yeah. No one, no one I wants mean, to go, ah, it's I'm... such a, it's a much more healthy situation where everybody feels like they're on the same team. Yeah. Because then you get a whole lot less infighting where people, when there is a mistake made, instead of viewing that as a valuable kind of thing where the whole team gets to understand what 
a new piece of data about what doesn't work yeah and benefit from that there's like finger pointing and stuff and and people try to figure out a way to if they do make a mistake cover it up so that you know somebody else further down the pipeline has to deal with it yeah. not them um such so, so unhealthy and you get the, like the just the boss character mm-hmm. who ha- has the the misguided idea that oh I did my time I did the work and now like it's my job to just be at the top you know and now I'm mm-hmm. the boss now I just get t- to tell you to do the I work I take people to dinner but That's if you job. if you think about all those stories all those stories of people living to be 80 90 years old and dying like the, the next day after they retire like they work until they're 80 or 90 they're hands on they're doing that same job and they're like interactive they live longer and then the second that they decide it's time or they, they're forced out of doing any work and decide, oh, I don't have to work anymore, they fucking kick the bucket. Yeah. How many of these CEO types are just like, you know, could probably enjoy uh, longer lives and just uh, longer mm. periods of relevancy just by being uh, interactive with their company yeah. and by actually doing the work rather than just spouting it off and, and expecting so, the best. It's so funny, too, because um, I have such fond memories of some of my shittiest jobs. Oh, me too, yeah. Like, uh, I used to work as a, as a seafood clerk at Sobeys, and uh, it was all very routine, like, uh, but I had a lot of control over my domain, right? Like, right. I was basically running my own department, so I'd come in in the morning at, like, 6 a.m., and I'd uh, strap on my big rubber boots, and uh, I'd head off into the darkened department, and uh, you punch in, you turn turn the lights on, turn all the lights on the coolers. Yeah. You uh, go to the ice rooms, you pull out the ice, you pour ice out on the tables, you take the, the fish out and you display it. And, and so uh, I had a I had a brilliant um, manager in the department that was really uh, adamant about the idea of accepting what you're doing mm-hmm. and your job and your place in the world and using it that those uh, limitations as... Uh, a conduit to do really great work right and not falling into the trap of looking elsewhere and being having like a pity party about oh this is beneath me or right. oh i wish i was doing more creative work a sense of entitlement that just doesn't you don't deserve it like you really well, don't the, the funny thing about it though was that um as soon as you um are focused on the moment uh, he would do things like, he's like, figure out a way to bring yourself into the department. Figure out a way to apply the things that you're interested in into these limitations. Right. So he would do things like encourage us because we were interested in art and design. Um, we did things like new graphic design for the back wall. We painted a big mural that was all like right. seafood stuff. Figure out a funny related. way to display the fish. We did um, <laughs> crazy um, marketing displays where we... Uh, lay the the flays out in these geometric patterns that yeah. we would work out the day bef- beforehand. Yeah, um, we did uh, special holidays where you know we did a display for Easter, we did a display for Christmas, yeah, yeah, yeah. anything uh, that was available. And um, the funny thing about it was, uh, as soon as you're engaged on that level and you're trying to get better every day, where you you're doing little basic things like. Um, keeping track of how long it took you to set up the day before and trying yeah. to beat that by a couple of minutes the next day. Yeah. Um, figuring out how much you sold last holiday and trying to beat that that yeah. time. Figuring out opportunities where 
someone will come in to the department and you try to make a connection with a, just one person each day mm-hmm. and then build from that where you try to make a connection um, where that person really feels like you've um, helped them. Uh, we used to do tutorials like where we would um, take whatever fish was on sale and we'd set up a hibachi barbecue and we'd start cooking in the store. Oh, yeah. And then you wrap with the people that come through and you teach them how to cook, um, you know, this fish or marlin fish. or oh, yeah. uh, shark steaks or whatever. And uh, those little slices of time where uh, you're connecting with a person and breaking through the mechanical... Um, habit that you're people not just have a drone you're engaged in what the, you're doing yeah you're making connections with people i think that's a huge benefit the funny thing about it is like the the time goes faster mm-hmm. and you're more satisfied with your work and um you avoid that trap that some people have where they've decided to come to work and they're going to protest the whole day you know this they're going to drag their feet and they're going to say like I don't want to be here I don't get paid enough mm-hmm. I don't like my job I don't I don't think that this economy is fair and it it uh, that attitude is like poisonous to the person it makes them depressed yeah. it makes them um it makes the day go slower mm-hmm. and it's poisonous to everybody around them at work cuz it drags them down and right. it makes them feel uh, they pick up those that bad posture where they don't want to be there and they yeah. don't want to engage. That's what I feel it, uh, the benefit of working at a place like I do now. Not I mean it helps that I I'm friends with the people who work there and that I I've known them for a long time. Mm-hmm. But when you think about a, a business of that scale when like the actual kitchen staff and serving staff is comprised of like a maximum of 10 people at the most, right? Yeah. Like maybe not even that many people. Um it feels more engaging. People trust you a little more. Um, you have to learn more about what you're doing, but that just empowers you as an employee because then you're not limited to your, your job description. Like, And I also feel that when you work in a smaller place like that and everybody kind of has to do a little bit of everything, like you're working in a, a restaurant small enough where some days there aren't a dishwasher, so the cooks dishwash. Yeah. So they have a certain appreciation for that job that makes them not shit on you. Mm-hmm. They don't go out of their way to like shit on the dishwasher because they know that it could just as easily be them like the next day if the dishwasher walks out. Right. And that kind of work environment where everybody's doing a little bit of everything, everyone's got their hands way into the business mm-hmm. and has like a, a certain like a vested interest in, in it it succeeding, right? I I want a job tomorrow, so I want the restaurant to succeed. Um, you know, there's just no room for anybody to play boss character. There's no room for anybody to shit on anyone else's parade because it's like we're all in it or none of us are in it. Mm-hmm. You know, it, like if one person bails and we're all fucked. Yeah, totally. And that's a, I just I appreciate that style more to the working at a condo place and having this guy who was just just promoted to being like a trainer or whatever. And the the sense of ego that 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 power over me gave him. <laughs> Made him a complete intolerable asshole, and yeah. you could see it. You could see his other coworkers being like, "He wasn't like that two months ago, and now that he's, he's trainer, mad with power." Na- well, now he's just he's he's amping up to that place where he'll eventually be able to say "fuck it" and not do any work, and everybody beneath him has to just like <laughs> get to his standard of working. I did my work. I did the time. I sold uh, the condos, yeah. and that's the environment that they're breeding in that sort of uh, that weird white class middle. Yeah. Uh, white collar. My friend Brandon's you know? going to be on the podcast eventually, but he's an IT guy, 
And uh, the funny thing about IT people is that they can see all of the internet traffic in everybody's office. Yeah. And he's just like, dude, most of the people are all on Facebook Nobody all day long. <laughs> Anybody who tells you in an office that they're working all day is completely bullshitting you because there's not that much work to do. Uh-huh. In the long run, like an office job is comprised of, you know, especially something like that, like working in a condo presentation office where there's only a few people coming in and the actual real estate agent is doing most of the work. Yeah. I'm sitting there just being like, well, I have nothing to do. So I have to make myself look busy or just sit on Facebook and hope that nobody complains that I'm doing that. Right. And and so many office jobs are based on that. It's like, oh, you have like this much to do in a day. And if you get it finished early, there's not really not much else you can do. And so like, but that's, that's a byproduct of the posture where you have people who um, think that the job is for you to just follow orders all day? Mm-hmm. Like yeah. um, one of the one of the things that uh, one of the anecdotes that Seth Godin puts forward is that um, Ford Motor Company noticed that they had a marked increase in quality um, of their manufacturing by letting the robots along the assembly line make decisions for themselves. Right. So, like, instead of having an error message pop up whenever the robot couldn't decide what the best uh, posture or procedure, how to move forward was. Right. And, ha- and calling on an operator to come, to come and over figure and it fix out. It, yeah. They just had it make a decision. Right. And, you know, if that decision ends up putting the bolt-on wrong or the door ends up being not painted properly, you toss the door aside and you keep going. Keep moving forward. You teach the computer not to do it again. Yeah. And then, yeah. Yeah. Um. I feel like um, that's that's always the best way for management to handle things is like empower your employees to be able to make decisions. Um, yeah. One of the other stories that Seth Godin talks about in um, his linchpin book is that if you go to Grand Central Station, one thing that's crazy is that in the bathroom, the um, trash containers are always overflowing. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is that the person who's in charge of emptying those containers is not the same person who's in charge of buying a new container. Okay. And that's uh that's a mismanagement thing. Right, because like, if, if you downloaded the responsibility and gave that person buy power like in a budget, they'd they buy, buy bigger a trash cans. Trash yeah. can cuz they're the person that's seeing the problems right. and they're the best person to make decisions on that level. There was a lot of that um that I found in that con- condo company too it was sort of just like, "Oh, we'll figure out you have to do it my way." Mm-hmm. But it, the whole time I was just saying but why does it work this way? Mm-hmm. And it wasn't because I was trying to be a snarky asshole. It's because like, I don't want your method. I have my own method. And I feel like if I just do your method, things might not ever, ever get better. And just because it works for you doesn't mean it works for anybody else. And there's a lot of that, uh, um, pride, that weird misplaced pride in someone's, uh, someone's procedure that ends up making a lot of work environments, um, not fluid and not work as optimally as they could. Mm-hmm. If you give someone the ability to make decisions like you're saying and also give them um, the chance to see the nuts and bolts behind like why you put this procedure together, they'll be able to uh, not just replicate what you do but solve problems along the way if they're ever faced with some kind of drastic change. Yeah. It won't just be like them come running to you and be like, how do I deal with this? How do I deal with this? You give them the tools to then make that decision and fix it themselves and come up with their own process that, you know, might be better than yours. Yeah. And that great adage about if you want to do something efficiently, put a lazy man in charge of it. 
you know like yeah. even in, in situations where a manager thinks that somebody um might not have the responsibility level to like handle something mm-hmm. they might be the perfect person to figure out that problem yeah because uh a keener um or somebody who's like slightly uh what's the word slightly um autistic when it comes to their job mm-hmm. uh they might be willing to to beat their head against the wall for an hour and a half until they figure out um how to do it the brute force method yeah whereas a smarter lazier person could go like oh i solved that thing i you know in moments i put the the door jam you know the door was people couldn't get in so i opened the door yeah and that's and that's like that speaks volumes about the smart lazy person right because in every job there's that guy that's just figured out how to work the system where he doesn't really have to do all the the brunt work Mm -hmm. and that guy is generally the smart one in the office who really like in a in a pinch has the answer for you, um, and then he gets promoted. Then he gets promoted, and then he gets to not work all day. All day, <laughs> in a fucked up all system. Yeah, our our economy is kind of broken that way. But topic for another day. I uh, I had worked as a a door to door salesman for one day. Right when I was sixteen years old. Um, I had answered an ad in the newspaper, I think, that was asking for, you know, they would take anybody, right? Right. And I went down uh, to the the office, and it was kind of like a generic office block in the middle of nowhere. And uh, there was this this young dude sitting behind a desk in an undecorated um, office, mm-hmm. and uh he sat me down and he, he was basically firing business rhetoric and I was very confused cause I, I couldn't get a straight answer as to what the job was that right. I was even interviewing for. Mm-hmm. And, um, he was looking me over and stuff and he said, you yeah, know, I'm glad, I'm glad you wore a, 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 a white shirt today and a, and a black tie. That's exactly, uh, up to spec. It's exactly what we asked for in the, the ad. Um, you seem like a personable young man. I think you're a hard worker. Mm-hmm. I think you could really do well at this company. And, you know, I still couldn't figure out what you the job You don't even know was. what you're supposed to be right? doing at the company. He's like, yeah. you're going to be partnered with Dan today. Dan's going to take you out on the road. Uh, he's going to show you the ropes. Um, you know, once you've uh, gone out on a, on a few days work and you're comfortable, you can start having your own roots, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, uh, okay. So I meet this Dan dude and he's like probably... 47 he's got kind of a receding hairline and big glasses and things and um he's got a partner he's got a second partner Mm who's this guy like jim and jim's like kind of a younger version of dan Mm -hmm. he's probably 33 and he's got like a bit of a trucker mullet and like a kind of a porn star mustache and stuff and the two of them are are driving me around town and i realize that they're door-to-door salesmen and uh they've got these suitcases that are full of like just dollar store junk. Like this is years ago. This is probably, uh, this is 17 years ago. Right. Okay. So a lot of the the stuff that we take for granted that you just find in Dollarama. Yeah. Wasn't that available. Okay. So like they had cheap flashlights, they had steak knife sets, they had little mind games, like where you got to get the pegs across the board and and get the wood thing block out of the other block or whatever. Yeah, yeah all yeah. sorts of like weird curiosities and they were taking me around town and uh we went into a strip club 
it was like the first time I'd been in a strip club. They got me in and it was like two thirty in the afternoon and they'd just walk up to these old bar flies and they'd like shine these LED flashlights in their face and uh, talk about all the features and these half drunk people would be like, Oh yeah, that's a pretty good deal for a flat and exchange some money. Yeah. This went on for hours and hours. And uh, they sent me out on a couple of uh, jobs like where they would stand at the end of the apartment hallway and they'd send me down, knock on the door and and try to to sell some of this shit. And uh, it was like so hard and obnoxious. Yeah. And uh, you're working on commission. Yeah. So you don't feel like you don't make any sales that day. You don't get paid. You're Mm. working for like eight hours. You don't get paid. And the culture between the two guys was very very strange like you hear all these like uh scenarios in pornography and in urban legends where like door-to-door salesman guys get laid okay apparently that's a real thing because the two of them were were had this like banter going back and forth like comparing how much pie they got they kept on calling like vagina pie Okay. It's just like, well, there, Jim, that was a pretty good day, but it doesn't match uh, last summer when you got all that pie. <laughs> that was the pie summer, was it? And Jim was like, pie. oh, yeah, that's right, Dave. We sure did. You remember that pie in uh, St. Louis that we got? And these guys had been all these different cities that they had done the same job. They go on like a circuit. Uh, Such a strange world. It's bizarre. Bizarre. Pie. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> And there was a couple of uh, house stops where we made, where I went to the door and the dude was like flirting with the ladies and stuff. And there's a bit of chemistry there and stuff. And, and uh, it, it totally made their bragging like kind of make sense. Yeah. And it seemed plausible. So yeah, there's, there's people that live their whole lives in that kind of death of a salesman type way. Willie Lomax going around. Hawking wares. Just hawking those wares. That's so strange. I found the door-to-door thing to be very weird because I did. I was admittedly it's different because it was for charity, mm-hmm. but they have a lot of the same ideas. And also because it's for charity, you're encouraged to be a little pushier than a salesman might be. When someone gives you a hard no and it's like, I don't want to donate to your charity, you're not supposed to be like, okay, thanks for your time and walk away, which is my natural position, right? If someone looks me in the eye and says, I'm not giving you some money. My reaction is, you're not going to give me any money, so I'm going to get the fuck out of here. But they were they were always on me to be like, no, no, no. When someone gives you a no, you have to figure it's out. It's a soft yes. It's a soft yes. A hard you no gotta figure a out, soft yes. Oh, so there's a bit of resistance. So you got to put out this. You got to put out this. You got to start probing them into their lives. You got to start building a rapport. You really got to like, you can't take no for an answer. And I was like, man, Let that me must ask be you a this. fucking shitty life. Do you hate children? Do I? No. <laughs> that's, the, that's the soft yes. Oh. Sir. <laughs> Do you hate children? Do you hate children? Wait, wait, you don't want to. You don't want to support these. What was the charity? Children? It was a number of different charities. It was uh, the I'm Human Fund. No, yeah, the Human Fund. I'm not going to say the name of the actual company, but they did all. They did work for like Plant Canada and the Canadian Cancer Society, which is what I was doing. Canadian Cancer Society. It needs to be a charity to clean up all that plastic in the Pacific garbage dump, the Pacific Island. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I just found it very, like, there were situations in which the pushiness that I was supposed to be putting out there would have given, left a bad taste in someone's mouth about the Canadian Cancer Society, and I didn't want I didn't see the, the objective there, mm-hmm. right? I was like, oh, if we're going out, we're trying to build rapport, then when someone gives us a pretty firm no, shouldn't we be trying, be trying to maintain this sort of, uh, 
at least respectful relationship that we've got going on by saying, yeah, okay, you said no, so I'm going to take that as no and leave. You just continue to insult their intelligence by saying, but we need this. And like, oh, but is it because you feel locked in? Or is it like, oh, blah, blah, blah. And then trying to trick them by being like, that's a really cool painting in your house. Do you paint? Blah, blah, blah. And then you can just see the anger behind the eyes of the people at the door being like, get out of my fucking house. Yeah. Walk away from my house and don't come back. And that. The thing is, the culture culture has really changed. I mean, uh, just a generation ago, it was common for neighbors to just walk over and knock on the door and say what's going on. And you had a culture of people just going door to door and talking to one another. Nowadays, uh, with cell phone culture and stuff like that, people don't like to be interrupted. Nope. And um, I had a couple of times where door to door people had come uh, to the Manning house. Yeah try to give me that hard sell yeah i got that too he go he go listen i don't make any money i have nothing to give barking up the wrong tree (laughs) buddy and like the more that you keep trying to push me the more time i had one project that i i was really enthusiastic about is uh years ago they were raising money to to build the cam h hospital right and i was like that is a big problem in toronto i don't have any money but i can give you like 50 bucks Mm -hmm. towards that because that is a very necessary project that needs to be good and done right and um Boy, did they take advantage of the fact that they have your credit card number and your address and stuff. Fucking chasing you Every down. Every six months, it's, they come bugging you. Yeah. Sending emails and things. I eventually sent an email to them and said, listen, you know, I almost want to take my money back. Yeah. <laughs> like, you're and the funny abusing, thing is. You're abusing your, my permission. The, the thing, a, this thing is how this all kind of ties back into that. Uh, that idea that like only one way works like the the way that this job worked for somebody is the way it works for everybody was very evident in this charity thing where it's like oh someone down the line probably like 10 15 years ago this worked for them in the 90s culture the early 2000s culture but since then things are a little different and one of the most successful guys on the team that i was out with he was straight up and he he told the rest of us like i don't I don't go. I don't build rapport. I don't do any any of those qu- question answering. I don't even give a spiel. I walk. Does he up. just do it with the numbers? He tries to hit more doors. No, well that, but also he just walks up and he says, "You know who I am. I'm from Canadian Cancer Society. I'm not going to bullshit about blah 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 this and that that we're doing. You don't care. Do you want to give us some money or not?" And most people would be like, "Yeah, okay, I'll give you twenty bucks. I'll give you thirty bucks." Uh, but it's all the all the previous people who have made this like rapport building system work for them and trying to make really friendly friendly canvases it's all about being friendly and interactive people hey, see brah. people see right hey, through brah. that just wanted to take a couple minutes of your time brah. i want to tell you about oh, cancer and, and just opening up with like oh like you're not even taught you like you you've got a big cancer hey. thing on and you're like oh hey, hey. Like, how's it going Weather's pretty nice, nice out haircut. today. I like your teeth. And the and the, on the other side of the door, they know what you're there for. They see the clipboard. They see the thing on your thing. You want money. You've only come not to chat, but for money, and you're wasting time. Yeah. And they see right through that. And it and it, it just seemed like this whole company was based around like, no, you gotta like, gotta pull on their heartstrings and really like become their friend. It's like, no, just fucking be straight up. Do you want to give money to cancer? Yep. Okay. Nope. See you later. That's yeah. as simple as a transaction needs to be. I wonder if um, things like Bitcoin and um, microtransactions and stuff will will change some of that culture. Because, I mean, you could just set it up where um, these institutions get funded directly where, you know, say you have a bank account and it's like when my balance in my bank account rises 
a certain level. Like if I make an extra $20 this month that I right. didn't expect, um, 1% of, of that profit goes towards blank. Right. And you can set up all sorts of different rules for, for your, your money account. where you can automatically donate to charity whenever you make a certain amount over your expected paycheck or whatever. That's an, yeah, that's an interesting I think thought. That it, that's, a, that's a more fluid way to do it because the word's out that a lot of... A lot of the charitable institutions, the majority of the money is used just institutionally, you know, to run the organization itself and to not hire to, people like me to go door to door and try and not to get to put more it, of it towards the the research. So it'd be great to just have the research companies directly linked to a digital system that I think that's I think the Kickstarter of. generation is really gonna that what you're sort of talking about will exist, but I think it's gonna be in a more like kind of traditional kick starter kind of way where like there'll just be kind of a permanent kickstarter thing going on for a charity and like whenever you feel like it you can just jump on the site and drop 10 bucks here drop five bucks here drop five bucks there it's more casual it you get the chance to really sit down and read about it and like kind of pick through the charities you want and it being so casual and so non-intrusive and being able to just be bits and bits and bits people giving five and ten bucks when they can you'll find that the people who end up giving will give a lot more in the long run just because they've been able to do it at their own pace, on their own terms, on their own increments, without anybody telling them it's not enough, they need to give more, they need to give monthly, they need blah, 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 blah. I think that there needs to be a um, greater public awareness, too, in how much how much money you get back from your taxes when you donate to this stuff, too. Yeah. I've been I've been really pushing hard the idea that the crazy thing about the left in Canada is that we don't donate to our political parties. Yeah. And what's absurd about it is that you get 75% of the money back. If you donate so, like, to your candidate, you yeah. Donate $100, you get $75 back at the end of the year. Yeah. Not even a, a tax credit. You get the money back. Directly, yeah, yeah in your directly. return. So there's no excuse that something like... Um, you know, Stephen Harper has a ten million dollars spending advantage in every election, which is well, why he's because yeah, you get the bleeding heart left who are giving all their money to to charities of their choice. I don't think like, that yeah. that's even the case. Well, I think that they just like to complain. They don't put their money where their mouth is. Yeah, especially people who don't and don't inherently trust the system. Like, if you have any sort of like distrust in the way, like, especially being on the left, being like liberal or like democratic, or whatever, like, you're always sort of looking at the uh, electorate process through. Uh, that perspective of like, oh, like the Republicans are evil and like the conservatives are evil and they like they use money and uh, pandering and like political power to get what they want. Mm -hmm. And so you, maybe but a lot of people feel like, oh, I can like avoid being a part of that. Like I don't want to give to my candidate, like give money because I don't want my candidate's platform. I don't to be believe driven in a money. system driven by money. It's right. like, well, that's you've it. also decided that you're going to lose every election cycle. Yeah, that's exactly it. Where a lot of people are just saying, oh, but like giving money to candidates is corrupt and like politicians are corrupt. But then all the people on the left don't give any money to their candidates and the Republicans are rolling in campaign money every single year. Well, Rob Ford was throwing like that thing came out where he was like, throwing a party, uh, a party outside of Toronto where like the cost of the the dinner was like so much money and the people would get almost all that back and the money would be funneled into his campaign even though those people lived outside of Toronto. Mm. And uh, and it's apparently been going on forever. It's a total like normal thing that you can throw these like campaign parties outside of uh, your electorate area. Like where people who don't even vote in your area like are going to be funding 
your campaign. So, like, I just feel like the Democrats just need to learn to play a little bit dirtier. They need to start doing stuff like that and not being afraid to take advantage of the fact that that's just the way the system works. Well, I mean, I, I don't think that uh, they're having that much of a spending advantage. They already control the, the House and the Senate and the White House. You know, the bigger problem is that the the Democrats aren't different enough from the Republicans yeah. to do much. True enough. Mm-hmm. Topic for another time. It's a big, yeah. it's a big one. <laughs> Ball of wax. Anyway, mm-hmm. that's about two hours. Yeah, it's Cut. Two hours. <laughs> yeah, thanks uh, for listening again. This, this is this has been therapeutic. This yeah. Brendan kicks his kicking weed. that weed habit. Kicking that weed habit. Ugh. Terrible. Mm-hmm. I just want to die right now. Nah, I'm alright. Uh, yeah. Come on, guests. Like, bring it on. Next one. Be the change you want to see in the world. <laughs> <laughs> alright, fuck off. See you later. Bye-bye. <laughs>